You folks see that flashing sign up there? Now that sign says, applesauce. No, no, I'm, I'm kidding. It says, applause. All right. Now, remember, we're on in 10 seconds, so get ready to have a good time. All right, here we go. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Directors Club Podcast. I am Jim Laskowski. Uh, I'm Patrick Rapol, and with us we have a very special guest. Um, you might know him from the B Action Movie column on Chud. You might know him from Brian O'Halloran's uh, Family Gatherings, uh, apparently. <laughs> uh, Mike Flynn. Um, hello, Mike. That's me. Yeah, that's me. How you are. Going, you, it's going great. You are. You. You have told me in the past that you are. You are sort of family friends with Brian O'Halloran. Yes, I know him. Yeah. That's great. Yep. Huh. Yep. I played card games with him. You know, he's, he's a great guy. Really nice guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool. he seems like it. Yeah, Magic. Definitely. Yeah. Magic the Gathering. He strikes what? me as a. <laughs> you play card games with him. He strikes me as a Magic the Gathering. No, I. It was not Magic the Gathering. All right. I'm not not dissing <laughs> Magic the Gathering. I'm just saying. I never saw that movie. He was in Vulgar. That uh, he was. I. I. I, I, I have not seen it out yeah. of fear. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. Exactly. My uh, my my parents don't listen to the podcast for the same reason. They want to keep loving me. So, right. <laughs> um, uh, we do have a letter to get to. We do indeed. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but there are uh, five main points that uh, have that were made. Mostly, it's about our last episode about Woody Allen. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I sort of wrote out the main points, and I sort of wrote out my answer as well. So, uh, point number one. Uh, oh, this is from. Uh, I'm sorry. Let me get the name. That's okay. This is from Rodney May- Mayfield. Very, right. very well written. Nice letter. Uh, rule number one: You said you didn't want to cover big, big name populist directors early on. So if you're going to break that rule, why start with Woody Allen? Um, which mm-hmm. is, we said we want to stay away from uh, directors like Scorsese or Hitchcock or the really big ones. Right. Basically, uh, in, until later in the in, in our run. Um, and basically, the reason we did Woody Allen, who is probably our biggest name director yet, as far as prestige and Oscars and everything goes, is that we just decided on a whim to do our favorite directors back to back. And um, Jim's was uh, Sam Raimi, and mine is Woody Allen. Um, so that's point number one. Point number two, uh, he felt the episode was too long-winded. He could barely get through the last 90 minutes, uh, which is the part where we talked about Woody Allen's films. And uh, my, my answer to that is that makes two of us because I, I don't listen to the podcast. I, I also thought it was way too long, three hours. Um, Jim loves long podcasts. So he I do indeed. He doesn't have a problem with it. But basically, we always try to cover the director's uh, you know entire filmography. But in the case of Woody Allen, he was just too prolific. So it just kept going on and on. Um, I promise if we ever cover someone else like that, like T- Takashi Miike or uh, Robert Altman or someone, where we won't make the same mistake. And we had legitimately interesting things to say about well, some no, of the films I, absolutely. later I, in his career that have kind of been dismissed. Absolutely, we we uh, we did cover pretty much every movie, and uh, also the and in general the shows have been going a little long. But we've worked out sort of like a complicated system of like pantomime and obscene gestures and illustrations of penises to sort of figure it all out. So yeah, um, the, the, this episode won't be as uh, won't be as long. Um, his third point was. 
Woody Allen has a singular voice as a filmmaker, and it wore out its welcome after Manhattan. But, uh, I mean, and my answer to that is, you know, you suffered through 90 minutes of us talking about him, so you know that we disagree, and we (laughs) stated why. Um, Number four, he said, I find it contradictory to cover this big-name filmmaker first over other more significant filmmakers who had had a much greater impact on the art form. And uh, and, uh, I want to sort of clarify the reason we decided early on not to do the really big name directors um, too early is because, um, you know, people like Hitchcock or Scorsese or Uwe Boll, um, <laughs> it's, it's because we wanted to make sure that we were good enough at this thing because we were sort of just starting out. So we wanted to make sure that we were good enough to, to do them and their work justice. And while Alan is, like I said, probably the biggest name director we've done, uh, this, that wasn't really a problem for two reasons. Um, the first being that both me and the episode's guest, uh, the velvet-voiced uh, Tony, um, we've studied his work extensively, and we knew it very well. Um, and number two, he, uh, as you said, his body of work isn't as influential as people like Scorsese or Hitchcock or uh, Michael Bay. Right. So we didn't really have to worry about uh, covering its influence as much. Which, by the way, he is still very, very influential. And you can't watch a comedy movie these days especially in this Judd Apatow era without you know oh, without sure. owing a lot to Woody Allen um he, he originated the whole Jewish comedy benchmark of that neurotic uh mismatched love pair like an Annie Hall without Annie Hall there would have been no four-year-old virgin there would have been no knocked up yeah I mean the Jewish the neurotic Jewish humor <laughs> has been around for since Jews but um I'm sure there were there were Jew jokes on they're walking through the desert but uh, it's it's um, but Annie Hall did redefine romantic comedies. Um, I was just reading in a book by Joe Esterhaas at Borders last night. Um, <laughs> he, he was, no, he was it's there. like a, it's no. it's like a whole, it's not like how to write erotic uh, screenplays, <laughs> no. which I would happily read. Yeah, I would love to read an annotated analysis of basic instinct and learn how to act like Michael Douglas in that film around women. Yeah. <laughs> But or Michael Douglas saying, in that in any he, film yeah. around women, um, but Basic Instinct in particular, he wears that shirt in the club scene. <laughs> it's like the open collar, and it would look so fruity on any other guy. Like, like seventies Clint Eastwood couldn't rock it. Right, the <laughs> only person I think that could have rocked the shirt he wears in that scene is Mickey Rourke, circa Angel Heart. Ooh, yeah, I'm, but, I'm with you there. <laughs> But yeah, apparently he said that Marshall Brickman wanted to name Annie Hall. It had to be a Jew. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, um, and then the original title was like Anhedonia or something. It was something kind of more pretentious, Mm -hmm. but, um, anyway, uh, and then the, the fifth point was he, he asked, uh, how can myself as a listener endure a full length episode about a director whose work I generally can't stand? Do I just skip the episode or should I listen and write more feedback like this? And obviously we always love getting feedback, you know, positive or negative. Uh, Obviously if it's negative, we hope it's constructive and it's positive. Be constructive. Don't just say we rock and say that you love us and you want to have our children. That's not, thank you. We, we appreciate it. And you know, but no, that's not a, (laughs) it's not productive. I got feedback for you. You want to do a Jim Jarmusch episode? You should do Broken Flowers and the Limit of Limits of Control. Mm-hmm. Oh my! Ninety minutes of silence. 
just stare into your computer because that's all that happens in that movie is people staring at things. Yeah, if we did a Jim Jarmusch uh, themed episode, it would all be one take, and uh, we would very talk. We would talk. Yeah, talk very little. Um, and uh, RZA would do the uh, score, which is kind of nice. Oh yeah, because he did for Ghost Dog. Um, that's right. Yeah, I have a feeling the, if you ever did a podcast, also similarly around the Miami Vice film again, a film where nothing happens except for a few cool shootouts, and you <laughs> need a master's in criminology to understand the dialogue. Oh yeah, well that's Michael Mann for you. <laughs> but I love Michael Mann. Yeah, I. I... So. That's a director I'm, I'm excited to talk about if, and have an episode on in the future because he's made things I loved and things that I felt were overpraised. Anyway, um, my answer to uh, to um, uh, my answer to Rodney is that um, you know our hope is that no matter how you feel about a director, listening to our show will be entertaining. But you know it's up to you whether you want to listen. Yeah, uh, I will say it's not like every episode we do is a mountain of praise. You know, even if we both like a director, like David Gordon Green. We uh, we generally at least disagree about individual films. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, we even disagreed about Sam Raimi, despite feeling the same about uh, his the two movies we talked about. So uh, that that was the that was the letter he said, uh, and then he said he was still looking forward to our future episodes and thanked us for our time and hard work. So thank you. Yeah, I mean, he also he mentioned that you know listening to Joseph Losey, you know, allowed for him to have a, re- you know, we gave him a good recommendation for, well, we got a good recommendation. Well, I don't want to, yeah. I can't take any credit for exposing Losey. Well, I just cause... like the fact that, it, you know, there's this sort of domino effect of, you know, I mean, in a good way, I should yeah. say, like just how we're all connected and, you know, mm-hmm. we got a recommendation and now we're passing that on to other people. And yeah. that's kind of we the purpose it, of the we podcast. We pay it forward. Pay it forward. Yeah. And then in the end, Haley Joe gets stabbed. Yeah. Oh, I forgot about our... And And Kevin Spacey gets burned. (laughs) And then Helen Hunt tries to have sex with him. Kevin Spacey plays... uh, Doesn't he play Harvey Dent and pay it forward? (laughs) It's either Harvey Dent or... uh, He either plays that or Mel Gibson in The Man Without a Face. (laughs) Or he plays Jonah Hex. (laughs) Anyway, um, so that was the letter. Uh, Let's move on to the movies we watched this week. Cool, let's do that. With the lights out... We watch movies, here we are now, watching movies, really want to, talk some movies, here is what we watch this week, you like movies, we like movies, talking movies, let's talk movies, yeah. Now, um, you me go and, first. Yeah, well, me and you, Jim. One of the movies we watched, we both saw, and yeah. I, I, I actually, I actually only saw one non movie. You saw Hill this movie. in the theater, though. So yes, I did. I'm sure that was a I'm, good experience. I actually, I had movie. a uh, Alvy Singer, Annie Hall kind of moment because I got there ten minutes late, so I just ah. I had to wait until the midnight showing, uh, which was a full two hours. And uh, there, there were a lot of bars nearby, but um, I, I don't drink, so I sat in the bar and drank Coke. <laughs> and I don't know if there's anything more pathetic than drinking, sitting in a bar for two hours, sipping on soda, but I've never done it. You must have gone to a uh, money laundering front for <laughs> cocaine. Yeah, no, yeah, I was it's sipping. Coke. I was, I was sipping cocaine. Um, it is liquid now. Uh, it's wonderful. It anyway, good. yeah, the six, movie six, we saw. Eight. Yeah, the <laughs> the movie we saw was uh, Thirteen Assassins, Takashi Miike's new samurai film. Yes. Yes. Um, 
How how familiar are you, Jim, with Takeshi Miike's work? I think the only other movie I've seen of his is Audition, and that's it. You've never seen Ishii the Killer? No. You've never seen uh, uh, DOA or DOA2, Birds? No. I actually haven't seen those either. I hear Dead or Alive is like, isn't it like boring and then there's something insane that happens at the end? It is not, it's, I wouldn't say it's boring, but it's not great. Uh, but it does have the most insane ending ever. Um, okay. <laughs> it's right up there with Jungle Fever and like other really insane uh, endings that just make no sense. Um hmm. He's a very prolific guy, for, yes. to say the least. Yes, uh, he does about nine movies a year. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and it's everything—it's everything from big budget, you know, sort of epic feature films like this to just TV movies. To he just sort of—he sort of has—he's sort of the Christopher Walken of directors, where he just accepts everything offered to him. <laughs> he just—he just did something like called Ninja Kids or something. Really. Ninja yeah, kids. it's like some Japanese three ninjas shit that they that he apparently just did. He's almost like Robert Rodriguez. I think then. my friend had that game for Genesis. <laughs> three ninjas knuckle up, or yeah, no, no, nin- ninja kids. You press C to throw little throwing stars, and there was and people exploding the coins. It was great. Anyway, thirteen assassins. <laughs> uh, I, I'm sort of familiar with Takashi Miike, but. It's hard to be, number one, because he does so much work at, that not all of it, or even, I would say, a majority of it, gets released over in the States. And um, n- number two, it's he, he doesn't have, like, any one particular style. Um, he goes hyperkinetic in weird, some movies, and but this one was sort of closer to audition, um, where it was more slower. Right. Um, is there people tempora in this film? No, there's no people it? tempora. There's no uh, no one eats a uh, bowl of uh, vomit. Is there? And there's nothing as disgusting as that part in Visitor Q where he's fucking his dead daughter, and then it turns out that she's wet, quote unquote, because it's shit. Yeah, no. yeah. There wasn't I, anything like that's... that. Wow. Or the or the lactation <laughs> scenes, for that matter. There's a couple. Oh, oh, <laughs> Jesus. I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah. There's a couple there's a couple scenes uh particularly this one This movie's Visitor Q is not being sold to me in any way. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you wouldn't like it. Um it's uh it's it's pretty much just for people who like necrophilia and lactation. Um anyway, 13 Assassins it has moments like that. There's a there's a woman who's had her arms and legs and tongue cut off and yeah, it's that was pretty disturbing. It's very graphic and she like writes out messages with a paintbrush in her mouth. Um but it's for the most part, sort of a very traditional um, uh, samurai movie, with the exception of its sort of its structure is that the I would say the entire last half of the movie, if maybe a little less, but pretty much the last half of the movie is all one battle scene. Um, it's sort of it's it's like Saving Private Ryan in reverse in that way. Yeah, where it, it's it, awesome. It climaxes in this like nearly hour long orgy. Violence of violence and sword play, and it's and it's and the whole movie. It's not a movie you can spoil, by the way, because it's the whole the 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 setup of the movie is this is what's going to happen, and it's about how they get to that point. You know, it's um, it reminded me of the Blues Brothers, only instead of (laughs) blues musicians, they're recruiting samurai. Like we got to get the band back together. Okay, yeah, that was that's (laughs) that's sort. Have you you've seen Seven Samurai, right? Yeah, it's the same thing in Seven Samurai where they're recruiting Mm -hmm. and. Um, but it's 
uh, tw- twice the size. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, nearly yeah, it's nearly twice mm-hmm. twice as many uh, samurai, and it's but what the movie's more about is it's about sort of the end of the samurai era, and that's sort of what made it interesting for me. Right. Um, it's about there. It's a there's a, a psychotic like sociopath kind of. Uh, he's not the shogun, but he's like the brother of the shogun, so right. he has a lot of power, and he's basically just has no morality and just hurts people for fun and so one uh, samurai one of my problems with the movie and this isn't I would say the movie's problem but my problem is um, I'm not good with names and faces no I agree and everyone in this movie dresses and has the same haircut yep like I, I, I know, I know that we are now the, uh, the the preferred podcast of the Aryan Nation, but I promise this isn't a all all Asian people look alike thing. This no. is a all characters who dress alike, and when you don't understand the language, they all sound similar mm-hmm. uh, and have the same haircut. It's hard, and they keep throwing names out that you're not familiar with. It should have been like uh, House Sue, where every character had like had a specialty and they were named after their specialty. That would be a lot easier to keep track of who's who. The uh the this kid the guy's uh, nephew could have been Gamblor. <laughs> right. Um but any uh but anyway, so like the first 20 minutes I was afraid I was going to be lost the whole movie because there's a lot of behind the scenes political maneuvering and stuff. Right. But once it gets like sort of set in motion and they start uh they making the their road. plans and yeah. they hit the roads, it's really well it's really good build up attention and mm-hmm. but again what makes it more than just a f- orgy of violence and an amazing action scene which it is all the action scenes are the at the end are incredible but it's there it's sort of like an unforgiven thing yes. where it's about the end mm-hmm. where the reason the samurai are all so willing to do it is because they have no one's had it's been a like an era of peace and no one's had a use for samurai and and this movie is all about people who in feudal Japan, they're so locked into duty and their place in society. Like the samurai regret that they, like their number one regret in their life is that they weren't able to die for their for their master. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds more like uh, the Wild Bunch. Which... Oh yeah, that's yeah. now that's a better that is a better um, yeah that's better than uh, that's a better uh, example than Unforgiven mm-hmm. and um, Sam Peckinpah and it's and there's one samurai. The the head samurai of the assassins is was friends in school um, with the head security guy for the uh, for their target. So oh, yeah. they mm-hmm. sort of meet, and it's sort of again he recognizes that his master is a violent psychopath, but again he's so stuck in tradition that he defeats him, defends him to the death, and you know. Uh, and like he's just w- ready to die, and it's and it's sort of again there may have been character moments just because it was hard to tell in the flurry of action um, who was who. Right. There may have been even more character moments like in arcs that I didn't even pick up on. But there is like an actual sort of thematic weight to everything that happens. And again, Takashi Miike, he's so prolific and he's so kind of crazy and random. Uh, yeah, he stumbles upon like sometimes he accidentally. I don't want to say accidentally because I don't want to make it seem like he's not a talented filmmaker, but it feels like he accidentally makes masterpieces sometimes. <laughs> and this yeah. is one of those times where just everything is perfect, and even kind of the weirder moments and the little excessively violent moments they feel right. Yeah, um, 
it, he adds context to what's taken place. It's not just like, oh, cool, you know, yeah. bloody violence just for the sake of it, or you just want to watch. Yeah, it's not gore. just him trying to be transgressive, right? Like many, so many right. of his other movies, which is what Visitor Q is, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and Ishii the Killer, and I'm sure countless others. Um, but uh, and uh, one thing I love is it's um it's really believable that these 13 assassins take on an army of like 300 or 200 people. And when you're doing that, there's like a couple of ways you can go. One is sort of like the kill bill way where it's like, Oh, they're fucking superstars. And they, you know, (laughs) she, she, you know, it's, she doesn't even break a sweat. Um, you know, taking off the crazy 88. And then there's the other way where it's just, where it's just, um, all about their plan. And this one is sort of like a really good mix of both. Right. Where they're very clever about their plan of attack and the, the movie doesn't let you on about what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. Like you right. sort of see them setting stuff up, but you don't know what everything is. And once you start to see all of these plans they and these traps and everything they've set up, it's really exciting to watch. But at the same time, they're really fucking convincingly excellent samurai. And it's not like... There's 20 guys around him, and they're all waiting and attacking one at a time. Like, you really do believe that these samurai are fighting off, yeah. like, six, seven guys at once. Um, you yeah, know, you don't feel that. like there's a lot of trickery behind it, that it all sort of, you know, pans out in a very organic way. Like, you just you imagine yourself in, in the same situations and how you would respond and, like... And especially you know, the way they recruit the last samurai, you're like, oh, yeah. oh he's so he, the last, he wants to join the crew. Yeah, the last samurai is a bandit that yeah. they find trapped. Um, wait, 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 Tom Cruise is in it? Yes, <laughs> the last samurai, uh, Tom Cruise. Um, he he's known effectively as um, as Ishiniku, which I think is Japanese for the short, strange one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, but um. Yeah, so the, like the last samurai they find is a is a bandit who is uh, and no, this isn't uh, Billy Bob Thornton or Bruce Willis either. Mm. And they're in a, he's in a net and they sort of free him and he leads them. They get they're lost. Sandra the Bullock and Dennis Miller are involved. <laughs> God damn it! Okay, <laughs> and uh, he sort of resents the samurai but is in awe of them at the yeah. same time. And he uh, he I believe has like the most sort of satisfying sort of arc. Right, um, and he and there's not a lot of comic relief but he is definitely it mm-hmm. um and it's and again it doesn't feel shoehorned in uh the humor I, it's a really fucking excellent movie jim saw it on demand yeah i saw it in theaters um so it might be in theaters near you but if not check your on demand listings because it's really good it is on demand i i remember seeing it was available when i got hobo with a shotgun yeah. last month. oh that's cool all right um what else do you see jim I saw it, – it's been a few years since I've seen this movie, but I felt like after watching uh, one of Walter Hill's films, Extreme Prejudice, I felt like revisiting uh, Tombstone from 1993. And nice, nice. I, I have I not seen this movie, but I – a while either. Yeah, I haven't seen this movie, but I know you have, Mike. Yes. Um, if you were aware, the B-movie column did an entire month-long retrospective on George P. Cosmatos. We did not cover Tombstone because we felt that one was too big, for it. <laughs> and we wanted to we, we wanted to highlight the more obscure stuff. stuff. So we did of unknown origin, Cobra, Leviathan, and I, Shadow. Uh, all these movies I love, and the thing about when I grew up and started falling in love with movies, 
And I, I mean, I was watching Rambo First Blood Part Two and Cobra because they were on the same VHS tape that I had made. It was like one of the first copies from HBO that I had made, and I was like obsessed with watching these two movies back to back. And the, yeah. I love this director and his ultra violent sort of. He, he's very stylized and yeah. unapologetic about, you know, it, I mean, like the thing about his characters, especially in those earlier films, you know, they're very like, you know, guys like Stallone obviously sort of represent stoicism, but man, right. there is nothing like there's some sort of cathartic release, you know, in, in Rambo where, you know, he goes, you know, Murdoch, I'm coming to get you. And then the no, same... No, the, ba- the best Stallone groaning in any Cosmatos film is in Cobra, where, like, the yeah. opening, you see that, that Cobra, he's like, in America, there's a burglary every 11 seconds. <laughs> yep. And armed robbery every 65 seconds. <laughs> a violent crime every 25 seconds. A murder every 24 <laughs> minutes and 250 rapes a day. <laughs> I am, by the way, I've, I've not seen Cobra either, but I am imagining that it is an animated film about a friendly Cobra voiced no. by Sylvester Stallone, <laughs> and that's how the movie opens. It's more like a 90-minute evil public service announcement. Yeah. <laughs> First minute, but I wrote 2,200 I was... words on that movie. That's how much I love it. I was scared. I love that movie too. I was scared to go grocery shopping as a kid after I saw that. That was that was that was actually the first R-rated movie my mom had taken me to because she knew I loved Rocky and Rambo and she's and when she's like, oh my god, what have I done to my son? (laughs) You know, because I was way too young to see something like that. I was very impressionable, but I loved it. I was still like. I was kind of in awe of Stallone for just being a badass at the time and, you know, in the same way that a lot of people, you know, later, uh, you know, worship Schwarzenegger and then, from, you know, later it was, for me, it was Bruce Campbell with the Evil Dead movies. So it's, there's, and and I realized upon watching Tombstone how there, there's just something about, you know, a band of guys getting together to just take on one group of other bad guys. It's a very, you know, Joseph Campbell wrote a lot about the mythology and the, the myth of the birth and the hero and there's always going to be villains and there's these similar archetypes that are always explored in, in, in all art and most in, in particularly movies. And it's interesting how, you know, we're going to be talking about Walter Hill and how he considered himself to always be making Westerns. Well, there's a reason why those archetypes are constantly revisited in, in, in movies. And obviously tombstone takes from real life events as well and sort of, integrates the two in a very you know entertaining way um but and what's the plot of tombstone well it's it's basically what happened at the okay corral the gunfight at the okay corral uh-huh. with, in which uh didn't turn out okay no yeah. <laughs> um but it's it's wyatt earp and uh you know he, he's trying to take control of this town because it's uh being under siege from from uh the cowboys these these outlaws who are sort of taken, you know, who, who are very ignorant of the law and everything. And uh, White Earp is sort of retired and is reluctant to really, you know, become part of the law and part of the solution. And along with his brothers, they're sort of just there to retire and re- settle down and relax. And then they wind up getting caught up into, you know, 
being being the law all over again. Mm-hmm. Um, they casted the fuck out of that movie. I know. <laughs> I mean, the, it's everything about it and the, the cast, um, and just the way it sort of builds. And you know, the thing about this movie too is that I, I was just curious because when it first came out, I don't know if it was really acclaimed. I know it was. I'm pretty sure it was a big box office hit, but. Um, I, well, I was looking at some it of the. It was a Christmas release. Oh, really? Yeah. It was. It was the big Christmas release. Um, it did fifty six million at the box office. Uh, rentals were twenty six million, so it made its budget back. Yeah. It was a pretty high profile movie. I remember. I, I re- vaguely remember seeing the TV spots for it back in the day. I'm trying to see what opened around the same time if something overshadowed that at the box office. Well, the thing about... I the... always assume it's Cliffhanger. <laughs> it's not Cliffhanger. Uh, Grumpy Old Men opened the same day. Oh. <laughs> as did Batman Mask of the Phantasm. You want to you talk oh. about star-studded Grumpy Old Men? Listen, yeah. all right? Kevin, Kevin Pollock? I, you, can get, you can get your Kurt Russell. You can get your every other favorite character actor who is in Tombstone. Bill Paxton, Powers Booth. Yeah. The list goes on and on. Buck Henry. But guess who isn't in it? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll name three names, and then the, the case will be made, and then there'll be nothing else to say. Number one, Walter Matthau. Number two, Jack Lemon. Number three, Kevin fucking Pollock. <laughs> Box office powerhouse Kevin Pollock. Kevin Hell Pollock yes. is a wonderful performance in Ricochet. Oh my god! I haven't thought about yeah that I I man a, John Lithgow is a bad guy. Uh, Shatner impression in that film. I they I, I was I was about to ask who who does he impersonate in that movie? <laughs> Impersonates William Shatner, and it's hilarious because he's just talking about an episode of Star Trek you watched with Denzel Washington <laughs> before before John Lithgow comes in and fucks everything up. Mm. Wow, I haven't thought about Ricochet in forever. I used to love that movie when I was younger too. Anyway, <laughs> that's a great generic well, action yeah, title. Yeah, Ricochet. Pubic hair. What's that? Have you flossed? Yes, with your wife's pubic hair. <laughs> that's right. my, uh, my favorite <laughs> interaction in that whole film, which is basically the whole <laughs> script, is when Lithgow gets thrown in the in the cell with Jesse Ventura, and Jesse Ventura is like, "Hey." I saw you get busted on America's Funniest Home Video. <laughs> and then John Lithgow's like, fuck yourself, cream cake, and beat the shit out of him. <laughs> John Lithgow is great. Yeah. Is he in Tombstone? No, unfortunately I only not. watch I only watch John Lithgow movies. Oh. I don't know if you noticed, but John Lithgow uh, played one of the samurai. In, he's a really good actor. You probably didn't yeah. know it's in 13 Assassins. I can yeah, see he's, that. he's great in Twilight Zone, the movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> he does a Shatner impression in there. Yeah. He's the reason why I want to see Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Oh, I didn't know he was in that. Hmm. Yeah, he's in it. That's cool. Yep. But yeah, you know, I, I I think some of the criticisms I've read of Tombstone is that it, there's so many characters they don't get enough equal screen time, and I think with production, um, pre-production, they they actually trimmed quite a bit out of the script. It could have been as long as the other movie that came out right after this, Wyatt Earp. It might even came out months later or something. The uh, we were just discussing Wyatt Earp on the thread, actually. Uh, I actually, when- I actually have not seen that. Um, I've always been interested just to compare, but I think the fact that Wyatt Earp is like a two and a half hour movie with Kevin Costner sort of turns exactly. me away. Exactly. <laughs> uh, in fact, uh, 
our resident Wyatt Earp is better than Tombstone uh, hacked around the thread is Fat Elvis. Really? Hmm. Yeah, Fat Elvis prefers Wyatt Earp to Tombstone, and then I called him out because I said, I, if I remember correctly, you're the one who doesn't like Silverado, which is clearly the best Kevin Costner western. Does Kevin Costner edit all of the movies that he's in, and that why they're all equally long? <laughs> no. He's he, he's a no. he's a he's a rare actor slash editor. Lawrence uh, Kasdan did Silverado. Oh, I'm not mistaken. It's a great movie. Yeah, yeah, it is another great cast. Some of these westerns, man, they they get the right casting agents behind these. Yeah, but Tombstone has like that. That is a cast to die for. And plus you get the uh, opening narration by Robert Mitchum. Right, right. No, I mean, just... He's scarier than John Lithgow. (laughs) Just, I don't know, like, I mean, the way it builds up, and Kurt, again, I have, I guess I have this thing with, like, guys having their big cathartic moment of, like, I'm going to go get that motherfucker right now. Just like that sort of... Just the, 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 you feel their revenge, and it's like Kurt Russell just, you brought down the thunder while you got it! Or, you know, I forgot what the line is, but I think that's it. That's pretty close. You called down the thunder while you got it! And, you know, all that stuff. Just, just like when he finally has his breakout moment of, like, I'm just, I'm going for broke. Is that, I don't care. Is that after the scene where he's mad at the other guy because he made him go see Thor? <laughs> <laughs> it's your fault you brought this thunder yeah. and it's weirdly paced I don't know what that line means exactly but it just fucking works so much and you know once uh, and what can you say about Val Kilmer in this movie it's one of his absolute best performances the camaraderie between Kurt Russell and, and Val Kilmer um, what, is it Valentine no Do- I'm sorry <laughs> Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp, their camaraderie together really sells this movie, too. You totally buy into their friendship as being, you know, n- not necessarily just timeless, but essential to, you know, carrying out what they want to do in, and, uh, in exacting it, revenge. I, I do want to mention about Tombstone. I, I haven't seen it in a few years, but I, I must ask, since you rewatched it, Jim... What is your opinion on Jason Priestley in the film? Because I know he gets <laughs> shit on a lot. I, I laughed. Do. I mean, I don't think he's awful. It's just funny to see Jason Priestley with a little funny mustache, a little curly <laughs> mustache, and being like, oh, hey, guys, I'm here, and I just want to join the gang. And, you know, I mean, I don't think he's horrible. <laughs> right. Um, B- Billy Zane's in this. Harry uh, <laughs> O'Quinn is in it. That's right. Yes, Locke. Good old John Locke's in this too. You mean I, good old Jerry Blake? Right. <laughs> hey, hey, Stepfather's a great movie. It is. It is. Yeah, Joseph Even Rubin's better are the good. Sequels. I don't think I ever saw the sequel. I think no, I saw the second one because it had evil Meg Foster's evil blue eyes. Yes, in it, it does. Yeah. And he dies again, and then. Stepfather 3 is even fucking worse, Mm. as in better. It has the funniest thing I've ever seen, like, ever, which is uh, they they recast the guy in something where he got facial reconstruction surgery, and the opening is is a complete ripoff of the part in Batman where he takes off all the bandages and he's the Joker and shit. Yeah. And he's banging Priscilla Barnes, and he's, like, making... (laughs) 
these MacGruber-esque groans as he thrusts her. He's like, we need to start a family or something <laughs> like that. You, you want to talk to somebody who can do a better impression of that would be Eric's. Yeah. Who, hmm. who is the one who turned me on to this movie. Did you guys see Stepfather Up to the Streets? <laughs> that, was, that was my favorite one. Oh my no, God. But Eric's and I created an alternate universe where there were like 11 Stepfather films. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. There, there, were, there was like a direct-to-video Stepfather 4 and 5 and 6. That and was then, the, uh, that's the, that's the universe where Charles Band created the Stepfather, right? <laughs> Actually, no. It was, they were made by Vidmark Entertainment. Nice. And, then, and then around 1999, the Weinsteins get the rights. And they mm-hmm. make Stepfather 2000, which reincarnates Jerry oh Blake God. through the magic of human cloning and DNA. <laughs> and they bring Terry O'Quinn back, and they bring the Jill Skolin, who bring, played Daughter. And they were going to give it a big theatrical release, and then it ended up getting released in like 114 theaters Labor Day weekend in 2000. Yeah. Hmm. And uh, then I, they're I, like... I'd see it, but I mean, John Lithgow probably wouldn't be in it, so <laughs> yeah, forget it. I know there's you know, there's, there's something they, there's something about Tombstone, like I said, that I don't know if it's necessarily one of the greatest westerns ever made, but it's probably my, one of my favorites easily. That I think people who haven't seen it and they they need to check it out if they're at all interested in this story. Did you see any other movies or one more really quick? Yeah, I just want to touch on. Because I saw it in the theater, and literally it was only me and my mom. I took her out for Mother's Day to see uh, The Beaver, um, Jodie Foster. I really liked it quite a bit. It's It's got some flaws. There are a couple of really implausible moments that, you know, involving, you know, like the community's response to what Mel Gibson has decided right. to do. He's basically a guy who just has a, a nervous breakdown, suffers from insanely you know, clinical depression. And he decides that he wants to communicate only through a beaver hand puppet. And it's about how his family, including his wife played by Jodie Foster sort of uh, responds to this and sort of, you know, he sort of makes up this whole backstory that he saw a a, a therapist that said, this is what he needs to do right now. And it's, it's a really great portrayal of, you know, how somebody tries to find any outlet any conduit and and as use it as a coping mechanism i mean like you can see the beaver is like a metaphor for why you know artists use painting or any sort of art form to deal with their demons and not necessarily like distract from them but use it as a way to engage not only with the outside world again but a part of themselves that they feel like has been lost and it's it's really I mean it has obviously it's got some hokiness to it. Is this a comedy? It's not. It's not a comedy. No. It's about a man who decides to talk through a beaver, and it's not a comedy. It has some humorous moments involving the beaver, yeah. But for the most what part, if, it's it's a what drama. What if you're like me and you laugh hysterically at the Mel Gibson tapes and quote them? <laughs> like, will I well, will I find it funny that? I almost is the beaver. What we're asking is: Is the beaver racist? No, no. I'm sad, sadly Does not. Does the beaver want to be blown? Yeah. <laughs> no. And I think but really... he, he, Does the, the beaver talk with a funny voice? There is a sex scene involving the beaver. Uh huh. Yeah, but it's very subtle. It's not. You know, it I mean, does, it's addressed. It doesn't involve Jennifer Lawrence, does it? No. <laughs> she she has an interesting subplot that sort of I don't know. 
like I was so into the idea of Mel Gibson using this movie as like therapy almost. I mean, because there are moments where it is definitely hard to separate Mel Gibson in this character because he's dealing with, you know, not necessarily like the kind of bipolar disorder that he apparently has in, in real life, but just some of the more emotional extremes that he's dealing with that I was thinking, I think he, I don't, you know, I feel like that Jodie Foster wanted him to be in this movie so badly to deal with like the the shit that he's dealing with in his personal life. And yeah. it, 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 it came across that way and it felt like a very empathic movie on the part of Jodie Foster. So this movie was his beaver. Probably. I think we all in life should. I mean, have a I know beaver. Steve St- Steve Carell, Jim Carrey were considered at one point. Considered but, right, yeah. But it, I, I don't know. I have really a like really it. shaky third act, like I apparently heard from a script review. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 interesting because it, it goes into a, a territory, and I don't I don't want to give it away that like kind of surprised me, but uh, still the 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 very final scene was incredibly moving and I, I don't know it's it's something that i'm kind of biased to like because it's about psychology and you know right. uh, mental pa- men- mental patients but just you know the people who are struggling with some sort of um disorder and how they try to deal with it I'm, i mean i'm i'm definitely interested in, in in the disorder but i'm more interested in how people respond and try to find a coping mechanism and that this movie really captures it very well and right. I, 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 it's too bad that it, you know, the, the controversy that and Mel Gibson's personal, you know, persona, sort of affected the box office because I think it probably, it probably wasn't. It, it should have been released later in the year too. So, yeah. but I, I really loved it. So, I think at least it didn't it. do as badly as Passion Play. Passion Play, the Mickey Rourke Bill Murray movie that made like two thousand dollars. Shit, I didn't even know about it. <laughs> Is it you from can the get director? It at your local red box. Is it from the director of Zizix Road? No, it's from <laughs> it's from Mitch Glazer, the co-writer of Scrooge, which is one of my favorite Christmas movies ever. Hmm. Yeah. So, um, what did uh, what did you see, Mike? Um. Yeah. So Monday afternoon, I've been dog sitting for the for a lot last week and the previous week while my mom's been in the hospital. Nothing big, just knee surgery. Uh, so finally Monday, I got a chance to see the hangover part two, mm. uh, haters can go fuck themselves. That, that would because... be, Jim. that would be Jim. <laughs> Jim is <laughs> definitely a hater of the first film. I don't, I wouldn't say I hate it. I just don't think it's laugh out loud, consistently funny. The I, the first film has strength in how well made it is mm-hmm. and how great the actors are in their roles and how they deliver the dialogue. The script is really trite and it would have been shit without the talent that they had involved. Apparently it was like a PG-13 affair that they decided to bump up and darken (laughs) through Todd Phillips later on. So I went to see Hangover Part 2 on Monday. I can unquestionably say I liked it more than the first. Interesting. I've heard the complete opposite, so... Well, see, this is the thing. People are saying, it's a remake of the first one. All right. Hangover 2 is not, say, Aliens or Terminator 2 or Godfather 2, where it's a uh, completely different beast from the original. Uh, This is more of a Die Hard 2 or a Robocop 2, where it's sort of the same thing, but there's 
Uh, there's a lot of dark, mean-spirited moments that you can clearly tell they're going over the top with. They're trying to outdo the first one, and they do it brilliantly. Like Crank 2. <laughs> yes, in a way, it's like, it's sort of like that. I was sold on the movie as soon as there's a part early on where they go into Alan, played by Zach Galifianakis' bedroom, and his room is peppered with pictures of yellow Labradors and wrestling memorabilia. Uh And there is a Macho Man Randy Savage poster on the wall. (laughs) There is an Ultimate Warrior poster on the wall. There's like a whole line of LJN WWF figures (laughs) that were like rubber and didn't move and were really rigid. And I remember those. I think my cousin had those. It's... I I gotta recommend Hangover Part 2 because... They go darker, and I love much darker things, and there's no silly shit that they pull. Like, I thought the baby thing in the first one. Yeah. I think anytime you involve a baby, it's just dog shit. (laughs) But this time it's a monkey. This time it's a monkey, (laughs) and it's a cigarette-smoking drug mule monkey. I'm pretty sure that baby was a drug mule. Hmm. I mean, it's it's not expressed, but I'm thinking it was hinted at. My favorite joke in the first one comes from the and, baby. And I, I gotta say, uh, I cannot picture Liam Neeson or Mel Gibson in the cameo that they were publicizing so much. Hmm. Because Nick Cassavetes plays the role as this complete shitbag asshole. And he's basically like an older version of his character from The Wraith, if you've ever seen that. No. Where Charlie Sheen drives around a really futuristic car and kills people. Are you sure that's not a documentary? Yeah. No, I was going to say, you mean reality? No, 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 this is not a documentary. This is this is a much cooler movie and is not a train wreck for its mm. lead actor. I, I recommend watching The Wraith to you guys. Okay. It's, it's, it's definitely an interesting film. Anyway, so Hangover 2 really enjoyed it. I don't want to spoil much, but I'm going to say it's the Die Hard 2 of comedies. That may not work for me because I'm not a big fan of Die Hard 2. Me neither. Me neither. When you when you, you said guys, Rob- when you said Robocop 2 and Die Hard 2, I'm like, oh, that doesn't bode right. well. I am <laughs> the action thread. Robocop 2 is not Robocop. It's not anywhere near the first one. Mm-hmm. But I like its mean-spiritedness. I like a lot of moments in it, but it's not the first one. Now, Die Hard 2, I love Die Hard 2. Because Die Hard 2 is violent, it's crazy, it's got a good plot, it's got good villains, not great villain comeuppances, except for that one dude who gets an icicle in the eye and John Amos getting turned into jet propeller sushi. Yeah, it has a a couple of moments. I I just feel like the claustrophobia, or, you know, that, that, you know, um, John McClane goes through in the first one isn't as intense in the second one. I like one. Die Hard 2 more than th- With a Vengeance. I would agree with that. I would not. Oh. With a Vengeance has a terrible third act. Yes. Yes, yes it does. But uh, it also has... Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I just I, I don't remember anything about Die Hard 2. So I, I, and I remember a lot about Die Hard 3 or With a Vengeance. So um, that that's what wins for me. I don't think either Die of them are very good. Is- is very underrated. I mean, I'll be glad to discuss the work of Rennie Harlan another time with you. That's definitely going to come up in the future. <laughs> I think that might be Nick, though, if we can get Nick. That's too. We'll see. We'll see because it's it's interesting because like I, 
I don't know. I think there's only like two Rennie Harlan movies I can say I really like a lot. But Long Kiss Goodnight. Rhode Island. No. Nightmare <laughs> on Elm Street Four. I li- yeah, I like Nightmare on Elm Street Four and uh, Long Kiss Goodnight. That might be it. Yeah, that is. I think that's it. That's it for me. I I love the Adventures of Ford Fairlane. I think I kind of like Deep Blue Sea. I have to rewatch it. You don't like Cliffhanger? I uh, love the first ten minutes of Cliffhanger. Yeah. Cliffhanger's <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I just got the Blu-ray of it. I, I I own it, but that's just got John Lithgow's in it. Of course. Yeah. British accent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, all right. Uh, so, yeah. seg- segueing with the uh, discussion of these action films and Die Hard and everything, I watched a very obscure Die Hard ripoff the other night that I really want to discuss because I kind of loved it, which is The Taking of Beverly Hills. Ooh, it's I never heard of Die it. Die Hard in Beverly Hills. <laughs> Basically, a bunch of disgruntled rogue cops and DEA agents fake a chemical spill and get everybody who lives in Beverly Hills shacked up in a hotel so they can loot all the houses and be evil. And <laughs> That uh, is an amazing... That's is an am- John McClane. And he plays a, an NFL linebacker named Boomer Hayes. <laughs> yes. Okay, and he what, has a Brutus Beefcake mullet. What What do I know? What do, What do I know Ken Wall from? Uh, he was on the series Wise Guy mm-hmm. in the late eighties. Okay, yeah, I've never seen that. In The Wanderers, which was the other nineteen seventy nine Street Gang film. Oh, okay, yeah. He I'm has, I'm familiar with um, Matt Frewer. Matt Frewer is yes, yes Max Headroom himself. He yes. is the sidekick, and he's quite good in the film. Uh, right, the bad guy is played by the always wonderful Robert Dobby. Ah, uh, yes, from The Goonies and yeah, Die Hard. Yeah. yeah, and Die Hard That's and right. uh, License to Kill. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. and right. Showgirls. <laughs> yeah, he's gotten around. But The Taking of Beverly Hills, if you like the early 90s, you will love the film. For example, there's parts where these cops are looting the houses set to Unbelievable by EMF. Oh, that's amazing. Oh, great. And there's a part where Ken Wall blows a bunch of shit up set to Fate No More. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'm so... Like, I love that song, so when that happened, I was like... Yeah, this movie's got my attention. That's, oh. that's one of the silliest plots I've ever heard. And this is from the director of Ladybugs, one this of the worst the movies. Director ever. of Superman Four. Oh no, a Sydney J. Fury film. Oh, that's painful. It is a. It, it, I, I recommend watching it. Taking Beverly Hills, man. It's I, a. It's a very good film. Uh, there's also a part where uh, he's getting it on with the main love interest played by Harley Jane Kozak, and he's in a bubble bath, like a really luxurious, <laughs> giant bubble bath. And uh, he's hiding under the bubbles, and he pops out from the bubble bath and goes like, hello! Like he's doing <laughs> or something. I have a, real quick, I have a Sidney J. Fury question. What uh, is your Sidney J. Fury question? I, I, figure, I figure, Mike, if, if anyone might have the answer for me, you might have the answer. 
Why do you think he wasn't? He didn't direct Iron, Iron Eagle three, but he directed the other. He, he directed every other Iron Eagle movie. That's because nobody cares about the Iron Eagle franchise. <laughs> Sidney J. Fury had just had it with the franchise. Okay, so I I, what brought him back any to of four? The Iron Eagle films. I saw the first one um, in a, a drug induced haze after I got my wisdom teeth taken <laughs> out. So I was on painkillers. I was That's on painkillers. Watch Iron Eagle. I remember. I remember wondering why Louis Gossett Jr. Uh, was in it, and then I remember thinking that this was like an Ed Wood movie where most of it seemed to be uh, stock footage. <laughs> and then, uh, I mean, and then I, I just got really gone, and then I started wondering why the remote was laughing at me. But that's, at that point, I, I'm not really a reliable viewer. I couldn't tell everybody, you how Iron Eagle Everybody ends. wanted to make the next Top Gun. You know, after no, the, it was released before Top Gun. Was you were it? Mistaken. Yes, I would have. I, I really wouldn't have thought so, but yeah, maybe you're right. A little fact about uh, about Iron Eagle: <laughs> there there was a little pissing contest. They put it out summer '86, but they pushed it up to January, which probably accounts for a lot of the stock footage and terrible effects that are apparently in the film. To avoid competition and confusion with Top Gun Source IMDb. Oh, okay, so it's a... Uh, very good. It, was it sort of a uh, deep impact Armageddon sort of thing? I believe it was, but Iron Eagle was remembered by nobody, I don't yeah. think. I, I don't even remember Although, it. Cause I take that back because I will not knock on Louis Gossett Jr. anymore because that man follows my Twitter. Oh, well, yeah. Now, why? Because I was laughing at the fact that he plays a guy named Jake Berkowitz in The Punisher. <laughs> you know, I don't want to uh, burst. I don't want to burst your bubble, Mike. But he sort of follows everybody who mentions Jaws 3D. It's mm-hmm. sort of his thing. Yeah, <laughs> I did not mention Jaws 3D. I mentioned The Punisher. <laughs> I'm sure. If, I'm sure. I I'm sure he's happy to be I, mentioned. I'm sure I would have been followed had I gone on a 11 tweet rampage. Praising the principal with Jim Belushi. <laughs> uh, d- does he just like tweet about like enemy mine all the time? Like what? What, what does Louis no, Gossett Jr. tweet about? It's about uh, uh, what is it? Uh, Digstown. <laughs> I'm gonna see if Sydney J. Fury's on uh, Twitter and mention ladybugs. I'm gonna start. Tw- I'm gonna start like <laughs> tweeting about ladybugs. Especially the fact that at one point Rodney Dangerfield gets everybody in the crowd to chant "Get those nail breakers" over and over again because Wait, one of the "Get those nail breakers" is not as good as uh, how "Rules of Engagement," the William Friedkin film oh, with yeah. uh, Samuel L. Jackson and Tommy Lee Jones. That entire movie is based around Samuel L. Jackson yelling "Waste these motherfuckers." <laughs> Why that movie is not an internet sensation, I'm really puzzled. Firewalker with Lou Gossett. Oh, jeez, I haven't thought of Firewalker in forever. You're bringing up like, all these movies that I watched as a kid that I haven't thought of in Firewalker forever. Firewalker is, the, is like Brokeback Mountain meets Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yep. All, by the way, I just want to say, on uh, Mike's... Uh, Mike was telling us earlier how he's applying for a job. I actually took a peek at his resume. On his resume, he, it said under specialties, it says those movies that you watched on HBO when you were a kid and yes. you never thought about until now. <laughs> <laughs> That's sort of Mike's thing. Do you, well, do you want to do a whole special edition of like USA Up All Night favorite? <laughs> yeah, I mean, call me for the Fred Decker episode. Yeah. Oh yeah, good old Fred Decker. It's just, it's... No, we're not talking about RoboCop 3. We're, we're not going there. It's it's just me, you, Jim, 
and Joseph Zito. <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, talk about our director of the episode, Walter Hill. I know we had to do a remix, right? Oh. Uh. Uh, Walter Hill, mad great at hard-boiled action, mad fuck compassion, surprising compassion for characters. Western scenarios, you want a guy with an eye for action, there he goes. Getting mad cause your style you're admiring. Don't be mad, Justin Lin is hiring. Wanna film with all the shotties firing? Look no further son, come on, let's dive right in. Here comes a brand new flavor for your ear Never have fear, Walter Hill is here Here comes a brand new flavor for your ear Never have fear, Walter Walter Hill is here Walter Hill got his start as a second assistant director on films such as The Thomas Crown Affair and Bullet Uh, He moved on to become a screenwriter, writing scripts for similar thrillers like The Getaway and The Drowning Pool But in 1975, he made the jump to feature directing with uh, Hard Times, starring Charles Bronson but it wasn't until 1979's The Warriors that he made his big splash as a director. These are the armies of the night. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? The Furies. The Boppers. The Hi-Hats. The Lizzies. The Turnbull ACs. The Gramercy Riffs. Riffs! And these are the Warriors. We know about the Warriors. They're a heavy outfit. They're from Coney Island. Warriors? You guys are the big dudes, huh? Now, they're in the Bronx. We're going back. 27 miles behind enemy lines. It's the only choice we got. Between them and safety... Stand 20,000 cops and 100,000 sworn enemies. I want them all. I want all the warriors. They've got one way out. They've got one night. The Warriors. In 1979, Walter Hill wrote and directed The Warriors, a fevered cult classic that mixed the danger of 1970s New York with uh, comic book visuals, a futuristic soundtrack, and the plot of a Greek epic. Relentlessly energetic and stylish, The Warriors even caused gang riots in New York theaters. Um, Now, before this most recent viewing that I had of it, the last time I saw Warriors, um, I was on acid. Uh, it was, yeah, uh, it was, I, was, I was in college, and I was enjoying acid for the first time, and I knew that I wanted to watch movies, and I saw this, and it felt perfect. Um, and <laughs> the, the funny thing about it, if I, if I could start a blog called The Acid Film Critic, where I just took acid, and then I told you what movies really were about, man, um, I would... <laughs> Because when I watched this, I was convinced that the entirety of the Warriors was a metaphor for high school. And it was very intricate, and I had it in my head. And then this time when I watched it, I was trying to figure out what the hell I meant, because I don't, I don't really get it. Did, did you, in a uh, in a drug-induced high, accidentally switch out over the edge to the Warriors? <laughs> you know Ooh. what? Over the Edge is a killer movie. Yeah? It is. Yeah. Is it a... You know it's a killer movie? 
the killer. The killer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, no, but the Warriors. Now, the other movie we're going to talk about, Streets of Fire. It, it's sort of it's subtitled a rock and roll fable. Mm-hmm. But the Warriors, I will say, it does feel. Maybe it's just because it feels so detached from reality that it, that there's like that that there's something else there where it's uh and again i think it's sort of what you're talking about where he, he thinks every movie he you know he not thinks he says you know every movie he done he's done as a western right and it's sort of these bigger um sort of grander kind of story ideas and and you could plausibly see the warriors as a western where civil war veterans were oh, returning absolutely. Yeah. home oh absolutely yeah confederates uh, it, behind uh, union lines or union behind confederate lines Confederates feeling whatever you know it's, it's a very adaptable thing but as i always say it's about the execution and the execution of the warriors is unbelievable it's one of the few cult favorites where the movie is actually brilliant yeah and it isn't like rocky horror where it's a like an entertaining film or something like that it's, yeah i feel I, yeah i feel like a lot of people um, who haven't seen it but are sort of aware of it might be mistaken that it is like a Rocky Horror situation because it's got these crazy gangs and they're all yeah. themed. Mm-hmm. And it's got, you know, lines of dialogue that are, I wouldn't say cheesy, but are kind of strange where just, can you dig it, suckers? And <laughs> and my absolute... Well, I think uh, Ajax has the best lines in the film, the... I'll shove that bat up your ass and turn it into a popsicle. Yeah, that guy. <laughs> that guy, and he just calls everyone a f- asking if everyone's going faggot. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, my favorite, my favorite line is um, Cyrus saying, "Miracles is the way things ought to be," which is one <laughs> yeah. of the strangest things I've ever heard anyone say because I don't yeah. know what that even means. But um, it's it really is a really well done movie, and I think that's sort of what has defined Walter Hill for me is he does these movies that taken at face value um, sort of seem like throwaway or silly or just kind of pulpy. Yeah. But no, there's some meat to those bones, but no, but the, <laughs> and the execution is really tense and you, and it's, and again, it, it takes advantage yeah. of that sort of 1970s, you know, dangerous, right. dirty New York before Times Square was cleaned up. And, and it's it, like the best films that, encapsules that era that yeah. and death wish are both that brilliant. yeah death wish and then and on the comedy side out of towners um where uh jack lemon is and that i think that was early 70s but jack jack lemon is like an out-of-town guy and he's just getting his ass kicked by new york city yeah. the entire time <laughs> yeah. um but and of course watch uh also maniac is really scuzzy oh in, yeah uh, new york area and uh the new york ripper another film that really shows the ugly side of New York. But I was going to say, Walter Hill, if Walter Hill's movies were like food, like produce, or like a meat department, his shit would be the stuff you found in farmer's markets that hasn't been touched worth shit. <laughs> okay, like, you're going to have to like explain Michael that Bay one. is the sort of guy that you find mass-produced, but Walter Hill is like straight up. Like, this is like this is an apple that hasn't been sprayed with shit. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You'll bite into it, and you will savor every juice of that apple. Absolutely. And it, it doesn't feel filtered through, like, you know, the Hollywood machine in any way. Or, like, just 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 his ideas. I mean, when I was watching it, and this is the first time I'd ever seen it, was this past week. And I feel like as I'm watching it, I should have seen this a long time ago because this movie's right up my alley. But, I, you know, and... I like you like never seen the Warriors. No, which is really strange. 
<laughs> I first saw the Warriors. Um, I think I remember seeing it on like the credits on TNT mm-hmm. at, on like Saturday night at midnight, and being kind of like turned off by the credits for it. I guess they scared yeah. me. I guess Ari Dvorzon's score was too much for me. But I rented <laughs> it from my local Hollywood Video. I'd say around O two. Mm-hmm. And I had heard all this stuff about it. And if memory serves, I rented the Warriors the same night I rented Cobra or Empire of the Sun, one of the two. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it would make watched, a good double feature with Cobra for sure. Yeah, but the Warriors was an unbelievable experience. And I was really yeah. taken in by how stylish and how there's this ambiguous yet Baroque color palette that's really flamboyant Mm. and as much as Walter Hill is realistic he's very formalistic and he brilliantly encapsulates New York City as we've said you see the graffiti and the crime and you see the desolate subway stations and the way all the gangs act and and that bus that looks like something out of the road warrior that the Turnbull ACs have (laughs) and 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 of course, the way the city is completely dead, except for these gangs and cops. Yeah. it um, feels like they already own the city, right? Um, it's because it's just so much more foreboding that way. Because it looks like it's it's a prison instead of a place where people live. And uh, again, I think what just sort of it boils down to is Walter Hill is a fucking great filmmaker. Yeah, and yes, we were okay. Now we were talking uh, a couple episodes about Sam Raimi. And here's something that I think Walter Hill does that Sam Raimi – and I, I'm not saying – I mean they're different people and they do different things, but – They don't s- bow down to stupid Wizard of Oz-related projects. <laughs> yeah. Ouch. Okay. But uh, no, um, Sam Raimi does kind of crazy stylish stuff, but he is never really able to give it a real tension and weight um, at the same time. It's more about wow. fun. It's like you know, like Quick and the Dead, you're never like, oh shit, what's going to happen? Oh fuck. Like, you're in awe of Gene Hackman's performance and stuff, but... Right. Like, Walter Hill can make things fun and, and like, uh, ostensibly silly and weird, but it's... But because he's such a fucking good filmmaker, it's always tense, and it's always... It always feels real, and you're always panicked, and then they're... And, like, and it's just scenes of, like, a band... Of them running through abandoned subways. Right. Like this and isn't you just you just feel for these guys. You're like, fuck. When are they going to get back to Coney Island, man? Yeah. And one of the things I love about it, one of the things that best represents that brutality you talk about, is the fight scenes. Yes. Which yeah. Were uh, the fun the fight scenes? Funny enough, were coordinated by Craig R. Baxley, who later went on to direct uh, "I Come in Peace" and "Action Jackson" and "Stone Cold," among other films. He put the entire cast through stunt school because Hill <laughs> wanted the fights to be as realistic as possible and, and they play out by that God way. they are. Yeah. yeah, especially that scene in the bathroom. I know. And again, that is my absolute favorite part in the film and has always been my favorite part of the film. I would agree. Where and they fight the punks. And again, it's just it's just so fucking well edited and um, And even it, the slow motion isn't yeah. overdone. You know, it's, so it's well, used at the right times. It's so well edited, and then it's really violent because you can feel the pain of them getting thrown yeah. through the wood doors and the ceramic walls and the sinks and the toilets and the floors. And you're like, fuck, I do not want to be there because I'm going to be brain dead if that happens to me. <laughs> and, you know, when they're, yeah, and they're facing the baseball furies, like that bat is swinging yeah. right by him. Yeah. 
Now, the Baseball Furies, interestingly enough, was, were inspired by two things. Walter Hill decided, like, you know, I love baseball. I love Kiss. <laughs> what if they were a gang? <laughs> nice. Um, uh, so he so he thought of it that way. Uh, the other scene I really like is the Lizzie scene, which is an interesting bait and switch because... It's sort of like that scene that, like, calm before the storm where they're having a fun time before the big final countdown. Mm-hmm. But then it turns out to be just another fight chase setup thing. And and again, that, that, that scene plays perfectly into the Greek um, sort of themes that... The sirens. Yeah, exactly. They're sirens. And they're this sirens. is... Um, and this is something that... Uh, uh, that uh, unfortunately, there's a director's cut. That uh, is this recording? Which I watch. I proudly watched my HD DVD of the Warriors last night. I, I gotta say, the edits in the director's cut do not irk me as much as some other people do. Like, I don't think the film is unwatchable. I don't think it's unwatchable. I'm just it's it it plays it a little thick. Um, and it's very silly the comic book transition. Yeah, which is, yeah. I think they, I think they hurt the uh, sort of, they hurt the pacing of the movie more than help it. Um, they make everything. But the film still has an airtight pacing. Like yeah. that movie just moves mm-hmm. with with all of, as as with like most of Walter Hill's movies. I know they're like yeah, usually under a hundred minutes. One film that I've seen of his that I could say that I, I dislike. They all just get the job done. And he's I, the, he's the epitome of a workman. Yeah, mm-hmm. he's and a he's a stylish. Very well, uh, whatever the word is, uh, I lost my. <laughs> well, I was uh, before we started recording. I was mentioning to Patrick how I, I felt a little bit like I get the sense that he, him, and John Carpenter would be buddies because they both really appreciate and admire the um, the western and John Carpenter, especially with something like Assault on Precinct Thirteen. Wanted Which is to Rio Bravo and Night yeah, of the Living Dead exactly, and and you know Walter Hill seems to embody that he, absolutely, and he he, he brings yeah. a bunch of characters together, and they they all have their distinctive personalities, and they all sort of band together for whatever reason, usually to you know overcome something, and that's something that I really want to see in most of my movies that I watch, where it's just like people in a predicament. Like just oh, it's, yeah. it's a very simple story. It's just like it's, these, these guys want to get home. I think I think that's the bottom line. Is like there's always a lot of talk about. Well, you know, we just like to tell stories, but a lot of filmmakers, what they're really interested in is tackling certain themes or trying out different stylistic things or trying to see how cool of an action sequence they can make, and then they'll exactly. sort of throw. Yeah, Walter Hill likes to tell stories. Um, yeah, he's a gifted storyteller. Is what he is because he has the screenwriter background mm-hmm. and. And he's very accomplished as a visual artist as well. Now, also of a note is that The Warriors is based on a book from the early 60s by an author named Saul Yorick. Hmm. Uh, a friend of mine has read the book who is a Warriors super fan. And he, he said, and I have learned on my own, that the Warriors in that book are an all-black gang. Right. And Hill yeah. originally wanted this for the film, but the studio was like, no, he can't do that. So when he decides to write it, they suggest let's cast Robert De Niro as Swan, a Swan. 
they also tried to get Tony Danza right. to testify. Yeah. No, neither. Neither would have ever worked in a billion years, and I'm so glad they got Michael Beck. I mean, Michael Beck, say what you will, he's the guy from Megaforce. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the other guy from Megaforce, pardon me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he's it, it, it's a great ensemble, and like I said, I think James Remar is the standout actor in this film. I, he's so intense and... Uh, and charismatic, and he just he sells all of the macho shit that Hill wrote down brilliantly. Yeah, that that sort of thing can easily play like play wrong. Um, that kind of macho dialogue. Uh, those right. are those are often the most annoying characters in a movie, but he really does make it work. And he's uh, and he is arrested by a young Mercedes. Woman. Yeah, I know that was that was shocking. <laughs> and who's well, she? All before uh, the Fisher King and even uh, Married to the Mob. Okay, right. Yeah. So, um, I, you know what my favorite scene is because I, I, I love when movies suddenly you you you've been following them under one context and then they're suddenly thrust into a completely different context. Um. My favorite scene is when it's at the end when they're on a subway and then these kids who just finished having their prom are sitting yeah. across from them. That's and they, a, oh, that's a great, great dramatic scene. pause. Just have like a thousand mile stare. And then suddenly it's just like this whole time you've been watching this as if they were actual like a gang of soldiers in this weird world. And then like when you put it into the real context, it's yeah. like such a fucking amazing moment. It's so it's such a brilliantly made scene, that part. Yeah, it's again, just, just played so out simple. in silence. It's so simple. It's so throwaway to the general public. But if you have that special close watch gene, it's magical. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting, too, when filmmakers can sort of, you know, tell it like a social allegory and still make it, you know, extremely escapist entertainment. That you know, you can you can easily just watch this and not think about some of the subtexts going on, you know. And in the same way, like some someone like Romero would have done with Dawn of the Dead and sort of take you know making his sort of overt stance on you know consumerism, but placing it in right. a zombie genre world. It's it's really I I always admire that when filmmakers can sort of. And you know, that is a brilliant juxtaposition. Yeah, juxtaposition, right Romero word. Does. Yeah, and it is yeah. and it is that. Um, and the next movie we're going to be talking about has this too, um, probably a little more explicitly. Mm-hmm. But I think again, what makes these m- movies resonate so much is that they are rooted in these very basic emotions of y- you're with a certain people, and then suddenly you're not, and then suddenly you're forced in another situation, and you don't know who to trust, and your their journeys. Yeah, and it's. Yeah. And I think, and I think, um, my my acid fueled <laughs> uh, interpretation of it as high school is that because I remember high school time of finding people who are your friends and then scattering from them and then <laughs> and then thinking that you know people who are your friends and they turn out to be your enemies and that you know um, well, you're just of enemies your at least the uh, Tony Scott directed remake is now sort of at the more the threat stage which has died down and they're probably not going to do it because the fan backlash was so bad. Oh, yeah. And they say, saw, and they it, saw the Pelham one, two, three remake, I'm sure. And decided, well, see, God forbid they ever do it. Get Denzel Washington to play Cyrus. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
Uh, okay, that's actually an interesting question. Uh, real quick, who would you want to? I I could never in a million years want to see Tony Scott direct a remake of the Warriors, but who would you want to see direct a remake of the Warriors? Who would I want to see direct a remake of the Warriors? Uh, there, there's a lot of people on my wish list to do that. I think there's a lot. There's a lot of directors who can't do action worth shit. Yeah, that that just keep doing shaky cam and that drives me absolutely bonkers again all the fight scenes they're played out in medium shots with a still camera and lo and behold they're thrilling you don't you don't have to squint and uh, right and and try to interpret what oh this is supposed to feel like action yeah no i want to watch action you know who would be actually i think pretty good with the material is uh matthew vaughn oh yeah from uh, Kick-Ass. Hmm. Yes. That's an interesting... I, I yeah. think he captured New York pretty well in that film, and I think he could do that with that universe. Hmm. If not him, uh, if they give him a directorial debut, I'd like to see Kurt Sutter, who created Sons of Anarchy, take it on. Oh, really? Yeah, I haven't seen that show. I've heard really good things about it. Brilliant. Hmm. Brilliant. Now, well, uh, season three, not so much, but the, fir- the second season is as good as season four of Dexter, but that's another story. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um, you know who I was thinking, and this probably is a little, uh, there's only like a few things that w- make him seem like he'd be a good fit, but um, Craig Brewer, who directed Hustle and Flow. Craig and Black- Brewer would be fantastic. Black Snake Moan. He directed the, uh, I th- believe the pilot or the first episode Ooh. of Terriers, um, which has some oh. good... Which has a good fight scene played out in medium distance. I remember seeing that episode and thinking, "Why is this better than any fight scene I've seen in the theaters in the past <laughs> couple of years?" I, I know what you mean. Um, um, but the other thing about him is, like, um, like Walter Hill, uh, you know, something like Black Snake Moan. He plays things like fables. Um, you, you know, Hustle and Flow has a little bit of this Black Snake Moan more so, and he plays and he's good about ensemble casts and how people interact. Uh, he's very humanist in that regard where he's yes. you can you always yeah. feel for him even you know even like ludicrous in hustle and flow where he's just a total fucking asshole like you get where it's coming from um so i and, and he's he just he uh i think he's wrapping up filming the footloose remake hmm. uh, yes which i hear is like there's like some actually decent buzz on if anyone not if, I, I love I love Footloose, but it, and I, I I would be very reluctant about a remake. But if anyone can pull it off, like I would, yeah, because I, I wouldn't trust anyone else to tackle. I don't know who's playing John Lithgow's character, but Dennis Quaid. Okay, one of the one of the things I love about Footloose is how much <laughs> empathy it has for the quote unquote villain, uh, John Lithgow. I'll be honest, I haven't seen Footloose all the way through. Okay, well, f- John Lithgow, he's the evil preacher, quote unquote evil preacher, but. Like, it's really a lot of time is dedicated to showing why he's that way and how he's just a hurt person who's afraid. And it's right. And he even has this arc at the end where he's just learned to accept things that are out of his control that he wanted to control. And it's and it's like and that's what for me puts it above sort of the cheesy uh, 80s movie about a silly concept about a town where no one can dance. Right. Because (laughs) it's really played very humanly. And I think uh, – so I'm excited about Craig Brewer doing that, but that's who I would have the worries. Uh, a, Jim? Yeah. Um, off the top of my head, I mean it's probably not necessarily an, the ideal choice because I've actually liked both of your suggestions so far. 
Um, someone that came to mind would be Catherine Bigelow, because I, oh, I, I, yeah. I, re- I really adore her. You know, confidence behind the I camera. I watch Bigelow do anything. Yeah, yeah, and I, I mean, I don't know if, like, yeah, I mean, I, because I, I love Point Break so much, but I feel like she added this whole other universe to something like Strange Days, to where it would be interesting for her to take on another sort of social allegory, but place it in, you know, in in her own vision of what New York is right now. You know, I know right now she's doing like a movie about what happened with, yeah, with Bin Laden. So it'd be interesting for her to take something on like, like the Warriors, because... I love the Hurt Locker. I love the action sequences are extraordinary in that. And of so. course, and of course, the way that uh, the gang um, in Near Dark yeah. interacts is yeah, good point. fantastic. Okay, now I feel justified. <laughs> There's a theme in her films about a drug. Yeah, the yeah. drug, the rush, the rush of war in the Hurt Locker, the mm-hmm. need for blood in Near Dark, uh, the rush of the, bank robbery in Point Break, Point Break, and virtual reality in Strange Days. And in Blue Steel, it's Ooh. Ron Silver and his need to kill people. Another movie I, I love that movie. Yeah, Blue Steel's awesome. Yes, it is. I love that movie. Yeah, great, a great debut for Tom Sizemore. Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, uh, yeah, I don't think they should do a remake. No. <laughs> that, that being said, I would I'd watch the hell out of a Craig Brewer remake, but it shouldn't, especially if it's not right. going to be a period you piece. Know, else I think would be not bad is but only if he'll do it with an R rating. Um after watching Fast 5, Justin Lin. Oh yeah. I haven't hmm. seen Fast 5. But judging from Fast 5 and Tokyo Drift, he could do the Warriors remake. Um, he could do it. But he does shaky cam and all that. Uh, well, and, and the other thing is, it would have to be a period piece because New York is not a dangerous place now. No, no, right? Like if it was moved to Detroit, <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, mm. the script that was written by—I believe it was written by the great Terrence Winter of The Sopranos and Boardwalk Empire. Thing, yeah, was set in L.A. and the Lizzies became transsexuals. And- <laughs> So apparently it was, it was really, really, really bad, and wow. Paramount killed it. God, I would well, love to read that. Um, anyway, uh, it's it's time now to uh, move on to um, our next film, uh, Streets of Fire. Yes. You are about to enter a world unlike any you've ever seen before, where rock and roll is king. The only law is a loaded gun. Where the beautiful... Stay and see the show, it's really good. The brutal... I want Tom Cody. And the brave all meet. From now on, it's for real. In Streets of Fire. This was Walter Hill's follow-up to 48 Hours, and it was dubbed as a... The key to the city, basically. Yeah. it was. This was dubbed as his rock and roll fable. Now, um, my co-host here, Patrick... Enjoys putting up, you know, in his spare time making mashup songs, and he does it very well. And I almost feel like Walter Hill, in my opinion, this is like his mashup of sorts because he's integrating so many different genres here, and it's it's just really a fun ride. And like the idea of mashing up the musical elements, action drama, fifties biker flicks, you know, all of yeah. it here in this, and again, a very streamlined story got to rescue the girl from the bad guy 
And, like, you know, again, he creates his own alternate universe here in which Jim Steinman composed rock operas permeate the scene, and but, but 50s culture still lives on. And I feel like that opening concert scene completely sets the mood. It put me in a great... So powerful. Mood. Yeah. That opening... I, by the way, I think it's Ry Cooter's best score with Walter Hill, and there's several scores that he did for him. Yeah. The no, opening yeah, for sure. song, when you see the Universal logo and the title and everything, I would do terrible things to have that released on iTunes. <laughs> that is just such a great song. It's interesting. I think Streets of Fire is Walter Hill's response to the rise of MTV. It is. Because, of course... Yeah, it absolutely. Is. Very mm-hmm. clearly. Is. Um, it's... it's some of the editing choices are really fascinating. You even um, right. see an L&E music video um, at some point during the film. It's also uh, at the same time. There's it's it's uh, it's references to uh, film, like even experimental filmmakers like Stan Brakhage because some of those transitions it just looks like <laughs> the emulsion is literally being scratched off yeah. the film. Yeah, um, I love those transitions. Yeah, and, and that's there a lot like in the Warriors opening credits where you have the subways, right? And the, conversations again yeah they have very similar very fast-paced editing um and again it feels both in field a little you know inspired by stan brackage where it's more abstract visuals to set a mood than it is um exactly trying to set you know the story even though he, of course he does that too mm-hmm. um yeah he there's i love once the credits actually like about 10 minutes into the movie yeah, the credits actually start it oh. starts it starts cutting to black um, for the credits, yeah, I love yeah. that. That it's I I really love that. Me um, too. Yeah, and it's it's set during like a drawn out balls out fight. Yeah, in yeah. Deborah Von Van Valkenburg's uh, diner, Mercy yeah. from the Warriors. <laughs> by, by the by the way, I always think being thrown out a window looks more painful when there's Venetian blinds. <laughs> I yeah. don't know. Like it's not like Venetian blinds are really heavy and it hurts to go through them, but seeing the Venetian blinds bend as you go through the window, it always makes it more effective for me. That is a that that is a very good point. Um Streets of Fire is in no small part my favorite fi- film from Walter Hill. Me too. Charisma right. is unmitigated. There's so much stamina, there's so much power going on. The entire first hour, and again, you're talking about that score, and I mean, I think if I had to listen to, if I had to choose which one to listen to, I'd prefer to listen to the Warrior score, but what makes um, Streets of Fire score so great is, almost in like a Run Lola Run thing, the entire first hour is wall-to-wall music, and it's just just like relentlessly propulsive, going forward and forward and forward, um, until... They finally, you know, they, they're trying to save Diane Lane from. By the way, by the way, Willem Dafoe's um, <laughs> Willem Dafoe's reveal one of the greatest villain reveals of all time. Oh yeah, because yeah. it's Willem like Dafoe is in top form. Willem Dafoe's great, yeah. and uh, here's here's what's so great. Uh, we see shadows, and again, it's at a crowd, but somehow Walter Hill's able to distinguish these shadows as being very shadowy figures, while the rest are just audiences enjoying a song. Mm-hmm. We see shadows. The, you think, okay, we need Willem Dafoe to look like the ultimate evil. We need to look like Satan. What do we do? And it's we the answer is very like simple. Satan. You just turn on the lights. Yep. Because Willem Dafoe <laughs> looks like Satan. Yeah. The lights it's fade the, on. The lighting guy switched on the light. And yeah, he faded bam, on he Willem Dafoe. Fade on light. Willem Dafoe doing his creepy grin. That's everything you need to know. Yeah. Um, 
again, and then, then that whole motorcycle like carnage scene, it reminded me of Piccadilly Circus scene in American Werewolf in London. Oh yeah. Where there's just yeah. it's just so visceral and exciting and intense and, and scary because there's just crashes going on and yeah. chain reactions and just like I said, it is the first masterpiece of an era dominated by MTV. And I do believe huh. it would have been much bigger if it came out after MTV was a little more established. I believe MTV had only been around like uh, two years or so. Well, 1984 was the year that they held the first VMAs hosted by Dan Aykroyd and Bette Midler. Oh, wow, but, yeah. Um, yeah, if this, all right, if this had hit after Miami Vice caught on, that would have been the end of it. Right. That and would have been, it would have been huge. All right. Here's, here's the situation. June 1st, 1984. You have two choices. Streets of Fire, after that fucking awesome trailer that they have now, from yeah. the creator of 48 Hours. You have that, or you have Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. Oh. Would you rather watch Michael Perret kick an ass, or Christopher Lloyd as a Klingon, and a Star <laughs> Trek adventure with no Spock? Uh, I think I gotta go with Streets of Fire on this one. That uh, is the and plus answer. and plus you know already that it's only the even numbered Star Trek movies that are good. I don't think they knew that yet. True. <laughs> I, I, I bet I bet most of Star Trek 3's power came from it was coming off of Wrath of Khan. Yeah, but um, right. it the is on. It, that, the thing I was gonna say too is. Yeah. Uh, Rennie pointed this out to me in the thread when, I, because I basically begged him for two years to watch Streets of Fire. And he finally watched it, and he was amazed how Michael Pere seemed so obviously choreographed that the role was intended for James Remar. <laughs> because, he, and watching it again, like, it hurts my head because it's an alternate universe where Remar plays Tom Cody. Huh. And it's like Ajax, the good guy. Again, great ensemble cast. You have Defoe, you have uh, you have Prey, you have Diane Lane, who has never threatened to put a potato in my pants more than <laughs> that woman is. That woman is so hot. She's always been hot. I mean, she she she's been married to two people: Christopher Lambert and Josh Brolin. The dude, Kyle <laughs> Lambert, Josh Brolin pretty good track record we're two for two yeah but what i'm gonna say is well it's pretty scary that i'm attracted to amy madigan so <laughs> amy madigan she's so crazy. cute but but like i don't know there's just something there's always been something about her but it's like in this movie i don't know that the, the sort of like tough you know tomboyish kind of sidekick thing i don't know and just a role originally written for a man Oh, okay. I love the moment where she beats up Bill Paxson in the bar and she jumps behind yeah. the bar. And then, like, tequila, wants. right? <laughs> That's what you wanted, tequila? Uh, I, I do think, honestly, I wouldn't say... Uh, I, I think that this, this, the movie Stolen by Willem Dafoe, uh, I don't think Michael Paré is quite up to that level. No, um, the no. I, don't, I don't think there are any bad performances at all. Um, oh, any, all right. I will tell you who I think is... On the level of Willem Dafoe is Rick Moranis playing an absolute utter douchebag. Yeah, he's a, he's like a whiny, little too little too whiny. <laughs> that was that was your complaint, Jim. That yeah, I, I, a little Rick Moranis goes a long way in this one for me. I mean, but a, I've, a lot. Well, a lot of Rick Moranis's uh, 
like assholeism is that he's trying to stick in Michael Perret's face that he gets to fuck Diane Lane. Yeah, that's it. Isn't it? Isn't just like they picked a random businessman who's just like no. well, I'm an asshole businessman. There is like a character choice behind it. And again, uh, I find it's, that a little it's bit kind plausible of... that Rick Moranis would be fucking Diane Lane, but okay, and it's 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 this world. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> um. Now, uh, it's... The, now another thing is that there's a lot of other character actors, some of whom show up in a lot of Hill stuff. For right. example, the great uh, Carpenter and Walter Hill common link, Peter Jason, who Ooh. does show up here. As and who is he? I should know him. He is, a poli- he is in several of Carpenter and Walter Hill's films. You would know his face if you saw him. He was on Deadwood. He was, he's a cop that, I think he's a cop at the blockade that they encounter. On oh, the okay. Now that I've seen his face, I know who you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's I just a looked ton. up a pic- I looked he's up a picture the- of his face. I don't know who he is. <laughs> Peter Jason. Yeah. And also, uh, William, William Defoe's right hand man is played by Lee Bing, who was the front man of the seminal New York punk band Fear who was the reason that John Belushi got to be on Saturday Night Live oh, in, wow. the 80s, in the early 80s when <laughs> uh, Donald Pleasance hosted, and he would only agree to do the cameo if Fear played as musical guest, and they apparently embarrassed everybody <laughs> in the audience and the crew and whoever was running the show at the time. But you have a lot, and also the... Uh, the doo-wop band is, yeah. is Robert Townsend, uh, yeah, Michael T. Williamson, and Grandel Bush are three of the guys. I don't know who the other guy is. but And, of course, we all know that doo-wop band did not sing the Dan Hartman smash, I Can Dream About You, which right. was the film's biggest contribution to pop culture, in a way. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's true. That I couldn't, when I was a kid, I couldn't go anywhere without hearing that song. And Streets of Fire is the film that introduced the world to that. And it's, mm. I, I like the two songs that Ellen Aim and the Attackers do more. Yeah, those uh, are the two songs <laughs> written by Jim Steinem, Steinman. Yeah. Uh, who wrote Bad Out of Hell and stuff. And it, it was funny. And the like, Bonnie Tyler song. I, and I knew, yeah, he did the, yeah, he did a lot of Meatloaf and he did Bonnie Tyler. But I was, uh, I knew that he did some songs for the movie, but I didn't know which ones. But the second I heard, uh, what, what's the first song called? Um, let me look. It up. Nowhere fast. Yeah, nowhere fast. It's like we're going nowhere, but we're nowhere going there fast. fast. Yeah. I was like, oh, that's Steinman. <laughs> Steinman <laughs> always writes those lines where it's like, yeah. uh, "There's a light in my head, but my head is a light." Like some bullshit, <laughs> like, yeah, like that, where he just switches two words. Um, uh, I so want to want to mention that. Yeah, yeah, Streets of Fire is so brilliant and. It got lost in the shuffle because the next weekend, Ghostbusters and Gremlins came out. and Oh, yes. Now, another thing is, well, we're on the subject of summer 84. That was the <laughs> summer where we got the PG-13 rating because parents were pissing themselves because Temple of Doom and Gremlins were so violent with PG rating. Yeah, that's right. The PG-13 well, rating came into effect because of Temple of Doom. But they forgot that Streets of Fire is really fucking violent for a PG movie. Is it PG? I wouldn't have thought yeah. it was PG. I but thought it was heard. I thought I heard a bunch of fucks and stuff. There, there's no. Fucks it's it's, it's R on the poster. Uh, originally, but I think they slightly edited 
it to get a PG so they they could get the youngins in the theater. <laughs> well, that didn't really work out. No, um, I wouldn't think so. And again, I, uh, best use of a Studebaker since the Muppet movie. <laughs> by the way, just got to bring that up. <laughs> um. Again, it's it's called a rock and roll fable, and uh, for the long part of it, I really didn't get what the fable part was. It does have that sort of, I guess, the the sort of original movie I would attribute this kind of structure to is Wizard of Oz, where it's <laughs> like a gang of, and they keep getting more and more people. Yeah. And uh, by the end of it, there's a whole big gang, and they all have different little motivations to want to keep going. Right. Um, I, Muppet movie was kind of like that. <laughs> uh, now that I think about it, but true. Uh, speaking of Studebakers, uh, but uh, and but I really do like the idea that at the end Michael Pare wasn't for Diane Lane. That he's, yeah, that uh, I completely agree. And I mean, I'm not sure Rick Moranis is really for her either. No, but <laughs> um, and then and there's you know what's infuriating. They were going to do sequels if this movie was a hit. Yeah, yeah. So say eighty six, eighty seven, we would have gotten Streets of Fire two. I think it was called like the ro- the the return of Tom Cody or something <laughs> was the planned name of the sequel. And I hate the world for I mean Ghostbusters and Gremlins deserve all the business they got. Oh, of but course. Yeah. The fact that nobody went for this movie, which was daring, it's transgressive, it's electrifying, it's so magnetic. And this is another film I own on HD DVD, and it was <laughs> one of the reasons I bought an HD DVD player so i could have streets of fire on hd dvd with the sweet original poster art and not the shitty photoshop re-release one all right <laughs> all right real, i am real, such a real, big real. fan of that movie i have the poster yeah for it or had the poster on my wall last semester in my dorm along with the rookie with clint eastwood yeah and well oh, yeah it's it's definitely my favorite walter hill as well for the pacing one more uh, scene we, we, i want to talk about before we have to um sort of wrap it up, is the climax. Um, and again, after the relentless first hour, I was sort of worried where it was going to go from there. Yeah. Um, and then the sledgehammer fight. And then, the, <laughs> and then Willem Dafoe is like, oh, I brought something. And I'm like, dueling pistols? Are they going to tie each other's hands to each other and do have a knife fight? Yeah. And Willem Dafoe brings out a sledgehammer. And I'm like, oh, holy shit, that's amazing. Yep. I, sledgehammer I, fights I remember such an original touch you'll probably know more than me I did when we did the action draft about three years ago I drafted Streets of Fire as one of my movies right and hmm. somebody questioned that and then they were like no Streets of Fire ends with a sledgehammer fight <laughs> <laughs> yeah if you had any if you had any doubts with him blowing up motorcycles and, and all of the and all oh, of that the great re- it's just a montage of him shooting motorcycles with that rifle and, and yeah. of course Willem Dafoe extravagant explosion and then Willem Dafoe uh and the Terminator 2 style just sort of walks out of the fire and goes oh that was kind of nice to him and I'm I'm glad I'll have I'll someone to for you Tom Cody <laughs> yeah exactly and I'll uh, be coming for I'll be coming for you too he's fucking great in this movie um Real quick, I guess we should talk about uh, Walter Hill's other movies. Yeah, we're yeah. very excited to mention because, as much as we love these two movies, I think there's a couple more it's titles so that movies. yeah that we want to bring uh, up. First of all, his screenwriting efforts, uh, The Getaway, of course, is a classic right. and um, a really underrated film. That if you ever get the chance to see it, is Hickey and Boggs. That's his first movie he wrote. Yeah, he with uh, wrote that, Bill Cosby, and it's Robert Culp and Bill Cosby, and right. it's not a comedy, and it's a gritty, 
cynical neo-noir, and it's awesome. Interesting. Uh, he I'm... wrote the, uh, the Drowning Pool with Paul Newman as a sequel to Harper, which is a much better film, in my opinion. That's written by William Goldman. Mm-hmm. But as far as his uh, directing career goes, he started with Hard Times, which is a sort of a street fighting movie, Charles Bronson. And I was, uh, I was this, uh, this has one of the couple mo- other movies I saw. I was kind of surprised with how it didn't have that Walter Hill feeling. It's it's very, it's very old. It's a very antiquate film. Yeah. Just not... mm-hmm. yeah. Despite coming out in 1975, it felt very old Hollywood, um, both in its style and content. It's, good it's yeah. If it, it is. I mean, if you want to see Charles Bronson give really good dramatic performance, it's a good movie. But yeah. it, but compared to his next movie, which I saw before this one, uh, The Driver, it was way the disappointing. Driver, yeah, The Driver is it's a sort of a riff on uh, Mel, uh, Le Samurai. That's Melville, oh, right? Good. Yeah. Um, and it, none of the characters have names; just just their professions. Names. There's the driver, the detective, the player, the connection. You know. Uh, you know, even people in the background, they're just not known as like characteristics like frizzy. Someone with frizzy hair is known <laughs> as frizzy. Someone with teeth is called like buck teeth. It's called teeth. I'm really sad that I didn't get to revisit the dry, the driver this week well, the, because it is a great movie. Now he, and it's yeah. a rare badass performance for Ryan O'Neill. Now he is. Yeah. And he is a, uh, now he did a, uh, you know, he was the second assistant director and I don't know what a second assistant director does on bullet, but he must have learned something because sure. the car chases from the immortal Peter Yates. Yeah, yeah. Because the car chases in Driver, I think, outdo Bullet. They're really incredible, and uh, and then and and again, it's just it's just his shot choices of when he chooses yeah. shoots inside of the car, where you see the cops coming behind them from the rear view window when when he uses the car that's sort of like the POV where the camera's like right on the bumper. Um, and just a lot of swerving, a lot of again heavy traffic is always what makes the best kind of car yeah. chase movies. Um, yeah, we were discussing it's like what the fuck are we gonna do? Yeah, and then we, like, live and die in L.A. Yeah, me and uh, me and Jim before the, the before the podcast we were discussing uh, Friedkin's two entries, um, French Connection and To Live and Die in L.A. Where it's just there's this feeling of oh holy shit I'm gonna die any yeah, moment. To Live and Die in L.A. is is superior in my opinion. I think so. That's my favorite. I think so too. I think so too. Um, but. Yeah, I would agree with that. But the driver again, another good Will driver is probably the tightest Walter Hill movie I've seen. It's not even ninety minutes. It's I think it's like eighty eight. Oh, it says ninety one. But it it's really short and it's really tight and it's yeah. And all the care acting is really great. Even um, Ryan O'Neill isn't you know it's he's playing very low key, unexpressive, but. I cannot... Right, like Ryan O'Neill's not the first person you think of for a role like that. No, but it totally works because he has this like sort of empathy where any like if any was anyone else who was sort of a little harder around the edges, you would have just seen like he had no emotion at all. But I believe Stallone was offered the role. Yeah, huh. I don't. Again, Ryan O'Neill, his eyes like he just seems hurt. <laughs> I mean, yeah. he doesn't emote, but just his his eyes are so big and empathetic. Uh, you just sort of he doesn't have to act to sort of understand what's going on in his head, and that's I think that's sort of the key. And of, he barely speaks in the whole movie. Yeah, he says about like a hundred words the entire film. Ooh. Cannot yeah. cannot recommend enough. I really love tight uh, crime movies like that, or most recently like The American was really tight. I haven't seen that. It's not great. I'm not saying it's great, but it's um but it is very tight and it's, it's a little too languid for me. 
I don't know why. It just didn't connect with me. And I usually like those kind of leisurely paced movies. Well, again, I, what, I, what I loved about like the first 20 minutes of – by the way, like I loved the first 20 minutes of The American more than pretty much anything else that came out that year. Because um, the first 20 minutes is like he he uh, he's in a safe place and then he's taken out of the safe place by a would-be assassin. Mm-hmm. And then he's it's, – it's him trying to figure out what's going on. So there's right. a lot of – very quiet moments where you, you just see him listening around him and you see him trying to get his bearing and it's and it's him sort of orienting himself and it's so fascinating and fun to watch and it's all dialogue free. Um, anyway, yeah. uh, anyone see The Long Riders? Which is this- I've seen The Long Riders. How it's is it? It's very good. He does a really good gimmick that he casted all real brothers. Oh, right. Because it's oh. David Keith and Robert Carradine, James and Stacey Keach. Uh, Dennis and Randy Quaid. Dennis and Randy Quaid, you're right. Uh, well, geez, I have Guest, to see this now. Nicholas and Christopher Guest. It's a, <laughs> it, it's a, it's a brilliantly conceived gimmick that really works in the film's favor. Hmm. I think it's just about to come out on Blu-ray, or it just came out. It, it's a good film. It was made 1980. Yeah, and it was one of the last films released by United Artists. Huh. Believe it or not. Interesting. Uh, his next film I like more, Southern Comfort. Yeah, that, is, that is my all-time favorite Walter Hill movie. I mean, it's sort of a toss-up between so this... manly. It's yeah. So <laughs> I don't know. There's something about this this setup that is obviously an allegory for Vietnam, but also just I love, you know, you mentioning, like, just the adaptive process that people have to go through in a certain situation, and watching this, these nine guys, or however many there were, I can't remember exactly the number, but... It's, and, go ahead. Uh, whatchamacallit, um... There was, uh... Uh... Just the, about Southern Comfort, um... There is... Yeah, I could see where you're talking about with the Vietnam allegory. It's almost like a more action-y deliverance, too. Yeah. Yeah. I, the way, when I first saw it, I'm like, oh, this is Predator meets Deliverance. Despite, right. I mean, I mean, Predator obviously hadn't come out yet, but... Um, you know, it's definitely got that. I mean, just, just watching them try to reason their way out of the situation, even though they created it, and then how they turn on each other, and just it's just watching men completely have to fight their own instincts and sort of figure out, well, what are we going to do and how are we going to, you know, get out of this situation? And it's, it plays like a horror movie to me because of how tense and claustrophobic it is. And Which I think never would call deliverance as well. Well, yeah. Yeah. Right. So I, that it's is, really, like, it really got to me. Like, I was again, so that's immersed. That's got a great Ry Cooter score. Yes. The, the opening guitar, just the ambience of it all yeah. sort of reminded me of, like, a, I don't know, um, it's, it's, I mean, like obviously, when you have shots of nature, I was thinking Terrence Malick, but <laughs> you know, where where it goes, it definitely has this horrific tension. For the building. two for the two years I worked at Blockbuster, when any, anyone ever asked me to recommend them a movie that I they don't like, they're like, "What do you think I haven't seen?" I I always said Southern Comfort because it is nice. it was for me the most underrated movie. Um, his next movie, great cast, was I, was his biggest hit, Forty Eight Hours. hours. Eddie Murphy, and Nick Nolte. I'm gonna say after rewatching 48 Hours, Patrick. I know you were saying it's not that great of a movie. I don't You're think it. <laughs> Here's my problem. 48 with Hours is awesome. It's, it's no Tango and Cash. It's no Tango and Cash. Here's my problems with 48 Hours. Number one, is great. number one. Okay, most buddy comedies, even even like Lethal Weapon, where it's less comedy and more action. 
like those opening scenes in Lethal Weapon where he's fighting the drug dealers and stuff like that, not nearly yeah. as tense and well made as the as the hotel scene. And this is and this is a movie that you think is going to be a comedy because Eddie Murphy's in it. But again, and it's Eddie a, Murphy is not inherently comical in it. No, it isn't. He's he's funny. Um, like Nick Nolte yeah. is also funny, but Nolte uh, is very surly in the film. Yeah, yes. and Luther shows up again. David As Patrick, Kel- yeah, <laughs> David um, Patrick Kelly, who's just such a wonderful creep. Uh, yeah. Anyway, but it, Jake Remar is great. Here's as my villain. here's my problem with Forty Eight Hours. Um, Eddie Murphy knows the entire time where they're going to go. Uh, is oh they're gonna get the money out of my car, which is in this place, right? So everything the information, but everything that happens before that doesn't matter. Then, because there it's because it's number one it's I, it's like such a broken story because they're like trying to find they're trying to track down this guy, but they but Eddie Murphy knew the whole time and it wasn't and like was just withholding it for no real reason. You're you're really wrong. The the performances are so well done. Uh, I love the opening scene. I love the hotel scene. I love one of my favorite moments upon rewatching it was when Eddie Murphy kills Sonny Landon. He just like he just like has that smile with the knife and just bam. And hmm. and again, unlike his other movies, though it's not as tight. I feel it really. It's it's not. Again, and uh, that's credited to five screenwriters yeah, too. Yeah, it feels right. like it. Uh, Stephen E. DeSouza, who co-wrote Die Hard, yeah, is credited. Mm-hmm. Um, Roger Spottiswood, who was Peckinpah's editor on Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, and later went on to direct a few decent films of his own, like Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. Oh, <laughs> decent. No, no. Turner and Hooch. Um, but okay. Um, Shoot to Kill is good, though. 40, 48 yeah. Hours has definite moments. Hotel room scene, great. The scene in the bar with the rednecks, amazing. I, Peter Jason is the uh, is the bartender. Yeah. What what really, what kind of first blew me away, again, it was just sort of like, oh, shit, Walter Hill's really good, even when the material, I feel, isn't that great, was when, he, right after the hotel room scene, Nick Nolte is trying to track down everything that's been happening, and it's all played in one shot in the police, and yeah. you see him pulling all this information together from this person, this person, this person, and people are scrambling because a police officer has been killed. And it's like, and it's all just done in one shot, medium take, uh, like one take, medium shot. And it's, and it's really great. Um, but I'm not a huge fan of it. Uh, I'm, I'm with you, Patrick. I'm not as crazy about it. I don't know. I mean, like the buddy cop genre runs very, mostly cold for me for some reason. I don't know why it's just, Oh, I'm Nick Nolte and I'm, I'm, I'm really disgruntled, I, I, I and I don't like you, my partner. And uh, that... I got a little homework for you. Why don't you two guys go watch Loose Cannons with Gene Hackman oh, and Android, and you will come back to me and say, "Hey, 48 Hours is really good." Well, yeah, yeah, it's if you're better than Loaded to, Weapon. If you're going to compare <laughs> it to Loose Cannons, where what what a, what a disorder? Uh, you know what yet. I'll say? You know what I'll say? 48 Hours is better than Brewster's Millions. His next movie, Brewster's <laughs> Millions is. Bland. It's bland I as hell. I've seen it until this week, and like, it's Walter Hill slumming for a paycheck. He reaches absolutely Joel Silver. I've never have seen it, and I'm surprised well, here's <laughs> because thing, I love both of these guys, and I've never. Here's seen the thing this. about Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor, hysterical genius, undoubtedly. His movies, 
are except for Silver pleasant, Streak are, are like pleasant, but not that funny. Right. Well, he, yeah, that's that's probably true of Silver. He Street. never <laughs> and Rooster's Millions is harmless. Yes, it's something it's somebody you pass on the street and you don't say anything to. <laughs> mm-hmm. Think about them. that's you watch it and then you just you don't think about it until you think about uh, like mailing a priceless stamp or right. something. I'm very I'm very interested to revisit his movie from 1986 called Crossroads because I saw it when I was younger, awesome. and it's nothing like his other movies. It's far as i know and Crossroads is so good yeah i want to rewatch it i saw that it's on netflix instant and i, I that's something i didn't have a chance to catch up on but you know mm-hmm. watch it watching the karate kid become a blues musician gotta go gotta gotta go and with that, that and that guy uh joe seneca yeah he's the guy who he goes on he should have gotten an oscar nomination he is absolutely magnetic black snake moan before it became black snake but you did but you did see and loved extreme prejudice jim which is his next movie. Oh, my God. Tell us about it. I did not get a chance to see Extreme oh. Prejudice. All right. Let's <laughs> talk about an homage to the Wild Bunch. Which is amazing. And yeah. it has the manliest cast of all time. Yeah. Nolte, Booth, Ironside, Brown. Rip Torn. Rip Torn. Forsythe. Oh. Alonso. Clancy Brown. Yeah. This, th- I mean, it's, again, a very simple premise. Texas Ranger trying to stop some bank robbers. You know, there, there are times, obviously, I was thinking of, uh, you know, with, with, especially with the bank robbing scenes, I was thinking of Point Break. Oh, but, um, the exploding rabbit. Yeah. 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 Oh, God, that, it's God, a great exploitation that. movie. They're, like, the violence is really stylized and gory. And it's very intense. And it's so, like, and Nick Nolte lost a ton of weight for that movie. Yeah, I mean it's 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 weird though because I I mean like some of the criticisms were like he was too stoic and I'm like but uh, yeah I mean well that's what? the that's He's the problem stoic is Texas Ranger I know well that's what I mean like that's what you come to expect from a lot of westerns that's what you come to expect from you know and Clint Eastwood early is that slimiest and unshadiest and Ironside is so pissed off and great and, <laughs> yeah uh I and I love that that gay guy from Revenge of the Nerds is one of them. Oh, that's right. Yeah. 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 Street Prejudice is so... That was one of the ones I was going to suggest doing, but for... for To do, like, a whole focus on, but it would have been too unfair, I think, to have two really obscure movies. Now, now Walter Hill. Walter Hill's next movie is a movie I always... It's a very controversial film, the B-action movie thread. I'd, I'd like to personally introduce Red Heat to you. Yeah, it's it always looked too generic. It's uh, it's like uh, what's the uh, raw? It's like raw deal, where it always just looks so generic to me. He did raw deal in the column. Raw deal's good, Hmm. but all right, Red Heat is a classic East meets West. It's it's like a Yakov Smirnoff routine as a buddy cop comedy. That sounds horrible. That literally sounds like the worst (laughs) thing I can imagine. Gay scene of all time where Schwarzenegger is going undercover in a Moscow Yes, I do remember that. That's one thing I remember. And <laughs> he's ass, of course. And he fights Svetl Thorson and they're both naked except for their towels. And then uh, Jim Belushi shows up as this like retarded Andrew Dice Clay 
cop in Chicago. Oh, that's of, why I never wanted to see it because fucking Jim Belushi's in and it. And there's a laugh track, of course, every time he's <laughs> yeah, there, and he's like, "Oh, what the what is this?" According to Jim, I don't know what I was trying to do there. His next, I'll rewatch it. His next point. movie, though, I've heard very good things about. It was recommended to me. Unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to see it before. Is Johnny Handsome? Excellent Got movie, right? It's the, one of the few Hill films that I don't think is like a western. It's more of a it's more of a film noir. Yeah, and, and very effective. Wearing his Marv makeup a full 16 years before Sin City. And he's, yeah, but he's also, yeah, that's a good point. I forgot about that. that he, and, and Lance Henson is an amazing, slimy bad guy. As always. Uh, Ellen Barkin plays a seductive... Slut. <laughs> uh, Elizabeth McGovern is like the goody girl that he falls in love with. Of course. Two very strong performances from both Morgan Freeman and, and Forrest, Forrest Whitaker. Whitaker. Yeah, Forrest Whitaker, kind of unrecognizable in this. Very compassionate, and Morgan Freeman is kind of a dickhole. Yeah. He's like pop. That's, he's sort of like who he played in Clean and Sober, where he's like a hard-ass counselor. But yeah. He's a hard-ass cop. He's, I, pretty I he's much, a parole officer. I pretty I think, much, yeah. I, I, I'm down to watch Morgan Freeman in any movie in which he isn't Jesus, because that, that's only a couple. <laughs> It's only a couple movies. No, no voiceover narration. Also has a Ry Cooter score. Yeah, very um, good. Very now good. We, we do got it. We got to run through the rest of them kind of quickly. Eight hours. Uh, yeah. Another classic, mean spirited sequel. <laughs> Just like another stakeout. A lot of bro- I've never seen another stakeout. You I've don't never, need to. I have stakeout on my DVR actually. Stakeout's pretty good. I like stakeout. It's fine. It's some good mustaches that. in that movie. Now uh, uh, he directed. Another- Eight hours seems to be like, yeah, Ed, you can definitely tell Eddie Murphy's in it for the money. And you can definitely tell it just, it's very dour from the small part I watched of it today. And Andrew mm-hmm. Divoff is no James Remar. I do uh, want to briefly touch upon uh, a movie that I've watched recently, the next in, in his filmography, uh, Trespass, which I really liked. Um, I mean, it was written way, I think, even before Back to the Future by. Bob Zemeckis and uh, Bob Gale, oh, yeah. and uh, you know, it's it's, Sierra Madre exactly, yeah, it. yeah, exactly. And I like uh, once again if it's just you know one gang versus another gang, and you know it's like Treasure Sierra Madre meets New Jack City because you got exactly. Ice Cube and you have both Ices and you have Bill Paxton yeah. and and you got William Sadler who he worked with on uh, Tales from the Crypt when he... Well, I do want to point out, and Patrick, I'm surprised he didn't interject his Tales from the Crypt episode, Cutting Cards, uh, which is with, unbelievable. With Lance... Because Lance, that's actually not one of my favorite ones. That was one that we disagreed I on. I like Cutting Cards a lot. <laughs> I just feel there's not enough meat to it. <laughs> Wait, like, because it all gets cut off. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think I think the man I think the first episode of Tales from the Crypt ever, the man who was death with William Sadler, mm-hmm. is by far the best one. And he is William Sadler's fucking great in that one. He's so charming, and he's but, he's like this sort of down home country executioner. Yeah, Trespass is a film. Uh, if if you want to watch a similar film like that, Judgment Night with Emilio. Yes, Westman. another they great movie. They, noir, I'm sure you watched I, Judgment I, Night I have on to HBO. Watch I got it from Amazon, but I never got a chance to read this. I'm it. a big fan of Judgment Night, really. I mean, yeah, Geronimo, an American legend, is is one of the two that I have not seen. Yeah, his next two, um, I haven't seen. The I watched Wild Bill, which was really good. 
It's got Jeff Bridges, and that's all. That's it's all. Got Jeff Bridges, so. Ellen Barkin. It's got uh, John Hurt, mm. Diane, Diane Lane again. Jane, Diane Lane, James Remar, David Arquette, who's kind of miscast. Uh, Christina Applegate. Um, Interesting. Keith Carradine's in it. it. He got like all of his favorite people. Hey, I love watching movies about old west figures. It's so. a fun film. I mean. It's not as good as the pilot for Deadwood, which he won several awards for, mm-hmm. which is the same exact thing almost, but it's fun. Um, there's a wheelchair-bound duel between Bridges and Bruce Dern, and Bruce Dern gets his ass handed to him by Bridges. Yeah. And it's it's a fun film. Like, the first half hour of it, about 90% of it is Jeff Bridges shooting people. So if you <laughs> like Jeff Bridges and you like people getting shot, Okay, I'm Probably sold. Like Wild Bill. I think that pretty much covers the entire population. Uh, but yeah, next, next last man standing. I'm not Bruce Willis instead of. Yeah, Jeff. I'm. I'm. I don't know why. I I'm not too crazy about this one, and I'm shocked because I expected to love it. It's his version of Yojimbo. Yeah, I don't know why. Maybe again, like I know that the criticism earlier I mentioned was too stoic from Nick Nolte. I felt that way about Bruce Willis in this. Like, yeah, it's kind of a blank Bruce, slate. Bruce Willis has his Hudson Hawk haircut in this film. <laughs> and you also have the magic of seeing Christopher Walken and David Patrick Kelly as warring gang uh, leaders. Is yeah. this a Western? Maybe I'm not going to be... A, ma- in it, technically, it is a Western, but it's yeah. set in the 30s. It's Much set like in Prohibition. Oh, okay, Prohibition. Yeah, Prohibition era. Because I was like, if it's a Western, then it's just a remake of uh, uh, Fistful, Fistful of Dollars. Dollars. Yeah. <laughs> but if you... Uh, now, uh, the, the calling card of Last Man Standing, in my opinion, is a film that predates both Shoot 'em Up and Drive Angry, similar scenes, where Bruce Willis is fucking Wesley Mann, and he kills a bunch of people while doing it. Uh-huh. Oh. Um, Supernova, I have not seen. And I heard it's shit. I think he only directed, like, a couple scenes or whatever. And Francis Ford Coppola took over. And, of course, Coppola Weird. took over. He's the end-all great director of consistency. <laughs> it also Had says it was. Co- it says it was co-directed by Jack Shoulder, who um, directed uh, who directed one of the the best Nightmare on Elm Street movies. Oh, but his but don't knock Jack Shoulder. No, don't don't you knock him. It's the hidden. The hidden, the hidden, the hidden is fucking, fucking great. Good. Yeah, so good. Yeah, is, I'm a, so, I, I gotta pick that up on. That, I, I that pick, is HBO late '80s late night classic, along with another New Line Cinema film from that period, Quiet Cool with James Remar. Oh, but, question about the hidden. Yeah, that's another one. Question uh, about the hidden. Is it incredibly gay? No. It okay, is not. then it's not as it's not as good as Nightmare on Elm Street Part Two. And end discussion. <laughs> <laughs> so, did you see Undisputed, which is his last? Directorial. I've seen all three undisputed. Films. I didn't know there were three. <laughs> yeah, it's a direct-to-video, I believe. Yes, Michael J. Well, if you follow up with the B action thread, you will learn, and as of I have learned, undisputed is the least good of the three films. The second one's called Last Man Standing. What the? Starring Michael J. White. That's and confusing. Called... <laughs> and undisputed three redemption with Scott Atkins, but. And it's funny because Michael J. White is playing Bing Rain's role in the uh, <laughs> sequel. Hmm. 
And it's Wesley Snipes and Ving Rhames. It's a good prison movie. It's decent. Um, Peter Falk is really good in it, in his brief role in the film. Uh, it, undisputed, it's good. It's not great, though. It's it's not that great of a movie. It's But it has a creative opening credit sequence where they introduce the characters instead of the actors. And, like, the prison information. It's sort of like uh, Extreme Prejudice does. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I like that. That's like an A-team kind of setup. Yeah. And of course he directed the Deadpool, the pilot for Deadwood, which is... Which, I, which I have not watched yet. I will watch that very soon. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's saved in my hard drive. Great pilot. And again, it's got a lot of the Walter Hill regulars. Peter Jason, Keith Carradine, um, Powers Booth as Cy Tolliver, who is a great character. Hmm. Uh, and I have not seen Broken Trail, the miniseries he did with Robert Duvall and Thomas Hayden Church. Which is a Western. Uh, and obviously, I'm very excited for Headshot, his planned film with Stallone, because I've been waiting for Hill to do another film. I want to be able to say I saw Walter Hill film the theater, and Headshot is going to be my flying colors chance. Yeah. Hmm. Now, um, uh, I think to wrap up the show, um, I think what we might want to do is um, something new we haven't done before, but uh, list your three favorite uh, Walter Hill movies. That's a good well, idea. So, um, I for me, I would say number one, Streets of Fire. Uh, number two, The Warriors, and number three, The Driver. For okay. me, for me, it would be number one, Southern Comfort. Number two, Extreme Prejudice, and number three, The Warriors. Okay, I would go Streets of Fire number one, Forty Eight Hours number two, hmm. and Warriors number three. Honorable mention, Extreme Prejudice. Good. All right. Good. And yeah, excellent. Well, it's been a pleasure to have you on, Mike. Yeah, great. It has been an absolute pleasure talking to you guys. I hope we will be discussing another director of this ilk soon. Yeah, absolutely. Because I need you to, you know, uh, tap into my memory banks again mm-hmm. with uh, the eighties era do, HBO do we films. Have to do some sort. Do I do I have to do an Inception thing or a, yes, yes. Do, <laughs> Think I, so. do I have to go like Johnny Mnemonic, Strange Days with uh-huh. you? Yeah, please do, because there's so much buried in there. I have no idea what's going on, but it was great. I, I had a great time. Absolutely. Um, so, Wait, uh, are we still recording? Uh, yes, yeah. we're just wrapping it up now. <laughs> oh. uh, until next time, uh, I'm Patrick Rapol. And I'm Jim Laskowski. Please visit us at directorsclubpodcast.com. Right. I'm Mike Flynn. Read the B-movie column, chud.com. Tomorrow, if you are a Rucker Hauer fan, you are going to be very pleased. There you go. Ooh, I am. So that's cool. Very cool. And send us an email. Please do at uh, directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. For our next episode, we're going to be discussing Peter Weir, which I'm very excited about. Me too, because I haven't seen – the only film of his I've seen is Truman Show. So. Fearless, be, fearless is uh, a learning my, experience. Is, fearless Wait, is in are my you top discussing five. Fearless? Yes, it's in my top five fearless favorite movies is ever. My, is my, I just saw it for the first time a few months ago. That is my absolute favorite of his films. As well it should be. <laughs> it's mine too. So that'll be a great episode. Please yep. join us then. Thanks, everybody, and we'll see you later. No. You brought down the thunder while you got it!
those nail breakers! Yo, it's the green machine. Gonna rock the town without being seen. Have you ever seen a turtle get down? Slamming and jamming to the new swing sound. Woo! Everybody, let's move. Holy Vanilla's shit! Vanilla's here with the new Jack Groove. Like what? Rock and roll this place. With yeah. the power of the ninja yeah. turtle bass. Yeah. Iceman, you know what I'm playing. What? Devastate the show while the turtles what? are saying. <laughs> Never mind. Oh, fuck.